Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to collinslaststand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 104, 104. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by Chris. He's gone gold. Ray gun, Chris. How are you today? <laughs> uh, good. We're in the thick of it. We're, we're in the thick of it. It's the final hours of uh, final hours of getting everything out of this place. Now, what is happening around you? It sounds like you're in an, in an amusement park. Yeah, that's usually how it's. <laughs> you can hear it now because I'm, I'm we're talking through like a mic that I don't normally use. Uh, over over our uh, podcast thing, but usually this is always happening in the background. Where our apartment currently, like where we're at and where we're moving from, is like right next to the pool house, and so just a bunch of children are screeching. Sounds like it, and splashing around like a bunch of cave dwelling invalids. Yeah, they sound uh, they sound like they need to be disciplined. Yeah, maybe it's, you can go out there and discipline them. Yeah, I I try to do the 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 you know the intimidating thing but still kind of like a you know oh it's not an immediate threat where i put my fake gun in the windowsill just to <laughs> just so they just so they know that's good stuff i like that <laughs> well uh yeah you move in the coming days so c- uh, good luck with that yeah and uh yeah we are otherwise have a we otherwise i should say have a jam-packed episode of sacred symbols of playstation podcast to get through we hope you're all doing very well out there right now all things considered, it's uh, late June when we're recording this, and so the summer months are upon us, and COVID looks like it's coming back, and so just get ready to be inside probably forever. Be yeah. like vault dwellers in Fallout. It'll be great. <laughs> Honestly, though. Vault uh, 101 or whatever it was, 111, whatever vault we came from in one of those games. Okay. Chris, for the uninitiated, Sacred Symbols, our PlayStation podcast goes live each and every week. You can get it Three days early and ad-free by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand, where you can also submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to the show. We sprinkle those throughout. Your support on Patreon also gets you access to Sacred Symbols Plus, which is our weekly Patreon-exclusive supplemental episode of Sacred Symbols. Last week's episode was a mailbag. We went for almost an hour and a half answering some random questions. This coming week is going to be a big one for us. It's going to be The Last of Us 2 spoiler cast and review discussion, so we're excited to get into that. As well, we got a lot of Last of Us questions submitted to this show. We're going to talk a little bit about the game, but we're going to save most of our conversation for the spoiler cast and review discussion. There will be no spoilers on this episode of the show, so fear not. Yeah. And uh, of course, Twin Breaker, our game is out on PS4 and Vita, so go buy it. Ports are coming soon. We'll have more information on that in the coming weeks, I think. And the hard copies of the game are shipping out still as we speak. I got to say, it always sounds like that in the background. It sounds like someone's being murdered. Dude, right it's, it's 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 crazy. I, I don't know why like immense pain and fun seem to be like really indistinguishable just by an aud- yeah. auditory standpoint, because it always feels like I should be stepping in, you know? Don't these kids have jobs or something or parents? <laughs> yeah, don't they, aren't they making Nikes? I know. Go make some Nikes, little kids. All right, let's get into some corrections and some random notes before we talk about what we're playing. Brian Boljack 
I hope that's your real name, wrote into us on Patreon, just like you can, says, hey, CNC, a quick correction to last week's episode about the bingo machine. I actually work for a few bingo halls in Texas. It's an interesting job. The basket thing you were talking about that you manually crank to mix up the balls is called a hopper. I actually knew that, I feel like. But those are only really used in home games or like nursing homes. In real bingo, in Texas at least, because it's heavily regulated here, the bingo machine is a large desk with a motorized blower to mix the balls and send them up through a tube, similar to lottery drawings and a rack of a rack with holes to place each ball in when they come up. Also, a quick call out to my friend Zach for being a dummy and ordering the Vita version of Twin Breaker when he does not own a Vita. <laughs> Dumbass. That's not very nice to say. So a little bit of clarity, Chris, for us about our bingo conversation last week. I... I, I again, I enjoy a game of bingo. Would you ever purchase the bingo pen? You know, the one I'm talking about, like the little marker no. that you you wouldn't want one of those. No, no, I no. Got you one? no. I, I, I wouldn't purchase anything bingo related. I, yeah. I don't think like bingo is like a genre <laughs> that I feel like I'm totally fine skipping out on. You know, I'm perfectly fine admitting like, you know what? This is for other people. Yeah, sure. Old people usually. I feel like I should make a bingo video game. I don't. I don't think I've ever encountered like a bingo video game before. That would be. I don't. I don't want to say that would be fun, but that would certainly be a game that <laughs> yeah, we can make. It would certainly be a game. It would certainly exist. <laughs> yes. Ben also wrote into us on Patreon. He says, "Rogue leader Colin and Bravo leader Chris. I hope you're both doing well." I wanted to take a quick moment to respond to the comment last week regarding possibly adding a third member to your team for Sacred Symbols. I think this would be a regrettable idea unless Clements is available. He isn't. As it was one of the reasons I left kind of funny when you did. When you fall in love with and follow a podcast, it really starts to feel like hanging out with your friends each week. There are inside jokes, callbacks, and running gags that we all get because we were there from the beginning. When you all started adding more voices to kind of funny, regardless of talent, it felt a lot like when one member of a group of friends invites people you don't know to hang out. Mm. They may be great people, but suddenly you start to feel like the odd person out. I think the reason why Sacred Symbols works so well is that you've managed to start up a new place where we can all hang out once or twice a week, have it be familiar and capture that old feeling of belonging I got way back in your days at Podcast Beyond. I say stay the course. It works and I love it. Well, thank you, Ben, for your feedback. It's, just, it's worth noting when I was a kind of funny, we didn't make any of those hires for personalities. I agree with you that it should stay pretty static. We got a lot of feedback about this, Chris. Yeah, uh, I was just mentioning it in passing, but people are vociferously against this idea. Yeah. With rare exceptions. So no worries. It was just something we were floating because it was we were written in. We have no intention of bringing a third member onto the show. Yeah, that wasn't like something on the docket. Or no, no. Uh, when I fire Chris, we'll bring a second person onto the show. Yeah, but it'll be it, it won't technically be a third person. It'll just be a, a second person replacing Chris's corpse on this <laughs> uh, on this podcast. But yeah, no worries about that. It is Chris's and my show. And we just wanted to talk about that because we do get that feedback every once in a while, but I'm actually in total agreement. I don't want another person on this show. I think Sacred Symbols Plus is a good way for us to bring other voices in. But otherwise, I think it's nice that people can rely on just hearing you and I yeah, each yeah. and every week. It's, yeah. it's, it's nice to keep it, keep it tight. And I agree. And that's why I find Podcast Beyond so peculiar, especially which is my old show at IGN that's still going. It's not really the same show at all anymore, but it still has the same name. And we've talked about this in the past. I wasn't an original member of Podcast Beyond either, but I was a member of what I would consider the most popular cast of that show. And there have been changes made, but is Podcast Beyond really Podcast Beyond anymore? Would P.S. I Love You uh, or is P.S. I Love You the same as it used to be? Would our show, Sacred Symbols, be the same with new voices? I don't know. I don't want to risk it. I don't want to risk it. Yeah, Uh, I'm in in agreement. All right. So no worries about that. Everyone calm down. 
Just calm down. Johan Ivan Bavrovsky wrote in, he's Russian, I guess. It says, on the topic of how to say caramel, how do you pronounce jewelry? Jewelry. Please don't disappoint me by speaking trash English. Thank you. Chris, how do you say J-E-W-E-L-R-Y, jewelry? How do you say that word? I say jewelry, but like, yeah, I'm, su- I'm, su- I'm sure there's some, I don't know, some, some British dude who's like, actually, it's jewelry. Yeah, and it's, or like it just something. sounds indistinguishable from what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> it it is written like jewelry, but like yeah, but yeah. like so so essentially you're putting an L where 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 no L is because it's jewelry is is definitely not how it's written. But I I don't give a shit. Yeah, you know I, I'm not yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna say jewelry. It sounds so wrong. It's like February, like whenever whenever hmm. like uh what what was it like uh. February or February like I'm not gonna say February I know that's what it is but like come on an R is like a tedious an R is an R is such a tedious like syllable to throw into the middle of a word like that that it's like I'm just gonna forego the effort I'm totally with you February was the exact word I was thinking about when you were when you were talking so I'm glad you brought it up because jewelry has three syllables really but it sounds it looks like it should have two like jewelry jewelry yeah, because you don't say jewel. Do you say Well, if it's just the word jewel, I just say jewel, like J-O-O-L, jewel, but it's jewel. Yeah. Jewel. Jewel. I don't know. I don't know what we're saying. I don't know why this is even relevant to this show. I think the only <laughs> thing that we can we can agree upon is that you can't say caramel. Yeah. Please don't say that. And syrup. Jesus Christ. Stop it. It's bad. Final one here. This is an interesting one. We got to read this one. Logan Willis wrote into us and said, why? Hello, my two PlayStation lovers. First timer here. Although I've been with Colin through three roommates, many explosive diarrhea, five guys episodes and three wonderful world famous podcasts. Quick question. Is it weird to put deodorant in your butt crack? I've been doing this for years and man, I got to say it's a game changer. Thanks for all you do and keep plucking those nose hairs. Thank you, Logan, for writing in. Chris, Logan puts deodorant in his butt crack. How do you feel about that? I, I don't, do, do you not shower? Mm. Like just shower, dude. Yeah. Just, just wash yourself and then you won't need, who is, I, I'm, this opens up such a cavalcade of confusing situations because it's like, in what scenario could you possibly be in where you would, you, somebody would be close enough to your butt crack to need to smell something good? I don't know. I don't want to make any judgments, but. I'm, See, I'm not I'm not really I'm not convinced by your argument about showering because we wear deodorant under our armpits and we also shower. So I'm not sure that I'm really sold on that argument. You know, I, I don't know that that that's the argument that's really going to sell me on why this is a bad but idea. But your but your armpits are like by your head. Mm. They're like and also okay. chances are people are going to get a whiff, you know, of whatever yeah, the hell you're yeah. who the hell is like I, I just can't. It's going to be sealed up by pants anyway like the thing is with like deodorant is like it usually like it's antiperspirant if you're wearing like a long sleeve shirt that kind of helps you not sweat and if you do sweat and you put deodorant on then it's like you know you're usually wearing like a short sleeve shirt or something and like you know that's open to the open to the air you know your your ass is secured and sealed behind like usually two layers at least of fabric i just i don't know i just think it's like a weird thing to 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 set aside a portion of your time to do when mm. you could just clean better. Yeah, I mean, I think swamp ass is an unfortunate thing that happens. 
I feel like you could do this without deodorant. I feel like maybe Johnson and Johnson's baby powder, which is, by the way, my favorite smell in the world. It's pretty great. I love like I used to have a bottle of it for really no apparent reason in in Santa Monica. And I used to just squeeze it so air would come out of it, you know, like no powder, (laughs) but just and I would just smell it (laughs) because it's it's such an amazing smell. Yeah, I think it's probably just because it's like associated with like being like a like an infant. Mm, It could be. I think that they took it off the market, too, recently. Yeah, it had lead in it. Yeah, which is uh, I don't know if that's true. I just totally made that. (laughs) I think. Well, I think it was. No, I think it was like it wasn't asbestos, but it was something like that wasn't. Yeah, supposed to be in there. Could have could have been something like lead. Well, something like lead. It's not lead because it would be really heavy if it was lead. But (laughs) lead infused baby powder is all. That's such an amazing concept. I feel like you could just kind of use that and put it in your butt crack and on your crotch if you wanted to keep things dry. My bigger question here is, and Logan, write in about this because I want to follow up with you next week. Do you have a separate stick of deodorant for your armpits and then a separate stick of deodorant for your butt crack? Because that's really germane yeah. to this particular conversation for me. If I don't, if you're using the same one, then I have some further questions that we can follow up on. But if you have them separate, I don't know that I'm that egregiously offended by it. It's like how like when I take a really catastrophic shit, I just get in the shower. Yeah. You know, I'm just getting in the shower. I'm, I'm, I'll wipe up a little bit, but I got to I got to wash my asshole. You know? Yeah. yeah. No, you absolutely got to like you. You cannot use the same stick. If you you, you're, no. you are a genuine psychopath, a sociopath, probably also. Yeah. Every every opath. Except for telepath, maybe. Telepath. <laughs> telepath. <laughs> yeah. So, Logan, right back in. Give us a little bit more information, because I think that what you ask here, is it weird to put deodorant in your butt crack. Yeah, I think it's peculiar, but I don't necessarily hate it. Chris doesn't like this idea. I think we need more information. I also want to know how you supplement, if at all, if you augment with baby powder, because that would yeah. be a, a relevant question for me. One Again, one of the great scents up there with like Lily of the Valley and Lilac, which are other two other amazing natural scents. This baby powder scent. Excellent. Excellent. So I don't care if I get fucking brain cancer from sniffing and I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. All right, Chris, let's talk about what we're playing. We're both playing. Well, I was playing Mass Effect. I finally beat it. We did a knockback episode about that. So you can go check it out if you want with my brother. We're both playing The Last of Us Part Two. I do want to reiterate. We'll get into some non-spoiler, just a few thoughts here and there on this show. We won't spoil it, but I'm going to save most of what I have to say. A vast majority of what I have to say for the podcast, especially because I'm 15 hours in and I've not beaten it yet. So I don't have a full grasp on on the game. But how far are you? What do you think of uh, The Last of Us Part Two? I think I'm about the same amount of time. I think I'm like maybe like 15, 16 hours in. And um, so far, I'm I have a, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on it. But I think the long and short of it is that the I think the gameplay is better than the first game. I think I'm enjoying the combat a little more, even though it's like relatively, you know, unchanged. It's still kind of simplistic, but like the, there's a lot of animation and like feedback that kind of makes it a little bit more. Uh, engaging to perform any any level of combat in the game. So I like that. I like the the level design and the routes that you can take to uh, approach uh, different situations, which was my main complaint about the first one. I it's it's a good game. It's a it's a good game. I'm really, really mixed on a lot of story elements, but obviously we'll save that for the yeah, spoiler cast. Yeah. Sure. But uh, I think based on like my current experiences, I feel like 
my opinions on The Last of Us 1 and The Last of Us 2 are exactly the same, except completely flipped. Like, the opposite is true. Yeah, so what you're saying is, is that you liked the story, but not so much the gameplay in the first one, and then the gameplay, but not so much the story in the second one? Is yeah. that what you mean? That is that yeah. is kind of what I'm feeling so far, and, and knowing... I'm 15 hours in, and knowing that there's another, like, 10 to possibly 15 hours left, uh, I'm feeling a little bit, like... It's starting to feel like... I, I like the game doesn't have much left to show me, but I know that I have a lot left of the game to go. So, yeah. so I, I don't, I don't know how I'm feeling about it. I do like it though. Yeah. I, I told, it's funny cause I feel the same way as you from the perspective of the gameplay is really strong while the story was the really strong element in the first one. Yeah. I'm surprised by how much of a video game the last of us part two feels like. And I mean yeah. that in a good way. I mean yeah. that in a good way. Not totally. Like it, it, it's definitely much more of a game. They didn't really mess around with the mechanics so much. It's just much more refined. And I think the encounters are just much more riveting in some way. So I think as far as gameplay is concerned, it's a it's a much stronger product than the first one. But I don't know how I feel about the story yet. I, I like it. I like the, the new characters that have been introduced. I love Ellie, obviously. And I need more information. Before yeah. I really make a verdict, I need to know where it's going. I will say at 15 hours or so, knowing that there's 10 or 15 hours left. And we'll talk about this a little later because there's a, actually a conversation we'll have about game length. I'm like, this is kind of too long. Yeah. You know, like, I don't know that I need 25 or 30 hours of this, but I, I wish it would have maybe it would have been a little tighter. But I, again, I don't have all the information yet, but I will say that I think it's great and I highly recommend it. I think everyone should play it because it's just one of those high watermarks as far as game production is concerned. I will say, and we'll go into this more on our show, and I said this, I think, on Twitter or maybe on Sacred Symbols Plus, I don't really remember, is that this game doesn't quite feel like it has the same level of polish that their other games do. Like, there are things in this game that I've noticed that are off where, and like just glitches where I don't really remember, with the exception of Ellie's AI in the first game, I don't remember experiencing anything like a few things that I've experienced in this game. And like there's a portion of the game, an entire chapter of the game, even if I restarted from checkpoints where Ellie's rifle was just gone and it was just a a strap with no gun on it. And she would hold I have actually screenshots of her or she would like hold it in her hands and there was nothing there. Like she was holding like an air rifle or something like a a fake kid's rifle. And there's like weird things like that where I'm, I'm like, what the fuck? It's not that these things don't break or whatever. I'm just like, I don't expect this in this game. This is one of the games where I don't expect to see something like this. And even when I restart the checkpoint, there's something so embedded in the code, I guess, that that booted to this area where her gun is gone. And it's just it's one of those weird things where I have experienced a few of those instances that kind of unimmersed me from the experience that I didn't experience in the Uncharted trilogy, Uncharted 4 and The Last of Us. So that's one thing that stands out to me. I also feel like you can tell that Neil Druckmann didn't write the game. At least, I, I like at least it doesn't feel like a linear a linear continuation of the game and i don't mean that just from the content we won't spoil that but i just feel like it's got a totally different vibe to it and i don't know if it's good or bad compared to the original last of us again i need more information yeah but there are a few things where i'm you know well let me let me read this from the uh the audience this will allow me to frame what i need to say i think better brandon yo sort of us on patreon he says hey guys first time patron long time listener here this one's for colin When you reviewed The Last of Us back in 2013, that was at IGN, you said it was a masterpiece. Can you say the same for The Last of Us Part 2? Hope you're both staying safe and doing well. 
This is an interesting question, Chris, because I'm not ready to answer that question yet. I, again, I don't have all the information, but I did say this to you on, on Sacred Symbols Plus, and I should say it to the wider audience. I think we're approaching this game differently. I think the time and space that you're looking at something matters. And we didn't exp- we knew The Last of Us was probably going to be good, but we didn't really know what, what to expect from it when we played it in 2013. We had never played the game except for at a, a couple of events. It's a new IP. It's, it's post-apocalyptic. It's something very different for Naughty Dog. And so it, it hit us over the back of the head because it was so good. With this game, we expect something now. And I think that that's relevant. And yeah. so it's not being judged. And I think rightly so through the same like it's no video game review is objective, but it's it's not being reviewed through that same heady, unanticipated lens where we wanted something from Naughty Dog. We were excited about it. People were really riveted by it, but we just didn't know until we played it. And so yeah. I think that that's a relevant part of the conversation. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. I think when you have something that's new and you don't know, you're not exactly sure what it is. All you can really go on is the pedigree of the developer and or if it's like a sequel, whether or not it lives up to the original. And even that's like really hard to gauge in isolation. You know, that's something that you will always have to look to the original to kind of gauge how it measures up. I, I, I think of... Uh, when you talk about that, I, I'm reminded of like Destiny, where it's like when Destiny first was like being teased and when there was like when the hype was leading up to launch, everybody was like, we don't know what this game is going to be. We have no idea like what this game is going to be. We just have some expectation based on it being Bungie that they can deliver like a really amazing FPS experience. And when Destiny 1 launched with like, you know, a very confusing amount of content and a very like you know, a a very light story and like it was it was disappointing. Whereas if I don't know, like if Housemark had made Destiny One, would have been insane. Would have been amazing right. if they had right. made Destiny One. Because it's like how did how do you go from, you know, a twin stick shooter to this incredibly well designed and 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 beautiful looking FPS? Like how do you do that? So I think, you know, it every game is judged differently and I think it, it should be based on what the expectations are. And there's really no getting away from it, especially in a game like this, where you had a game in 2013, seven years ago, that didn't even really need a sequel in the first place, that now has a sequel seven years later that really has to justify its existence, as opposed to the first game, which really just sort of had to be good. Yeah, it's very well put. You know, there's a thing in sports that they say, and probably in other things too, where when a team, like an unexpected team in football or hockey or whatever, when they, they rattle off a bunch of wins, they, the, the saying is, is that they're not sneaking up on anyone anymore. Now people know that they're there. And that's the thing with Naughty Dog. I mean, you can't just rattle off four Uncharted games and The Last of Us and all of this in a 13 year period. And then people are, are, are expecting, you know, there's expectations. And I'm sure that that's we've talked about that with the crunch culture there. It's a lot of pressure. And I think that eventually they're not going to meet the expectation. It's just not possible. And I don't know if this is that game. I don't I don't think this game is is missing the mark for a lot of people. It's it's not missing the mark in any substantial way for me. But I again, I just I think you have to look at it through the lens and in space and time. And we often talk on this show about resistance and Killzone. And if you go back to resistance on PS3, the launch game in Killzone, which was on PS2, the original Killzone, those games aren't very good. And you can actually play Killzone, the original one on PS3. It was ported by Supermassive, actually, I believe. Back in the day, or not, maybe it wasn't super massive. Who was it? I, don't, I can't remember. But those games were so good for the time that they spawned these franchises that people really love. But the games got better and the expectations changed. And so when you go back to the original game, 
it's not so good anymore. The Last of Us suffers from, I would say, a different problem. I played through it all again about a year ago, and it's fucking awesome. It's an awesome game. So I, I just I'm, I'm excited to talk about it in our spoiler cast and really get into the nitty gritty because I just I think by doing so, I'll be able to figure out precisely how I feel about it myself. But in the meantime, I can say with certainty that it's a great game from my perspective. Mm-hmm. I just don't know to the question we got. Is it a masterpiece? I don't I don't know. I, I would I would say probably not just because I don't think I don't think you can put the smoke back in the chimney or the, the genie back in the bottle. I don't I don't I don't know that you can can is it possible that both games are masterpieces? I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out when I when I, when I beat it. <laughs> yeah. All right. We have a few more questions, though, I want to go into with The Last of Us that will allow us to explore the game without spoiling anything for people. So, again, no fears. Adam Laws wrote into us and said, hey, y'all, hope everything is going well. So far, I'm loving The Last of Us 2. There are some hiccups, but overall, I'm really pleased with the final product. Here's my question. What has been your favorite non-spoiler part or addition? Personally, I love the new Stalker Infected. The first encounter with them was a great introduction and a welcome difficulty spike compared to the game up to that point. As always, keep doing the best podcast. Thank you, Adam. So, Chris, is there something that is in this game that wasn't in The Last of Us without spoiling anything? So maybe more of a gameplay mechanic or something that has positively surprised you? Uh, yeah, I, I think going prone and like just kind of the the opportunities that you have with stealth are are pretty, pretty great. I think they're a lot more expansive than they were in the previous game. I still think it's a bit, you know... You give me all these stealth mechanics, but ultimately you still kind of put me in a situation where I just have to kill everybody in an area to progress. So there is like kind of like that weird gaminess to it that kind of sucks, sucks the meaning out of any stealth that you could really achieve. Because I actually wanted to like sneak past everybody. Yeah, like, that would I, be nice. like that would have been really cool. But I, I, I quickly realized that you couldn't. But uh, I do like the 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 level design. I feel like the level design is a lot more interesting. There's a lot more corridors. There's a lot more like. Uh, you know, crawl spaces and and thin uh, thin uh, cuts and walls that you could like shimmy through, and the the traversals a little bit more uh, varied and interesting. I like that a lot, and I think it's the reason why the the gameplay is like really really doing it for me at least at least currently. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think that the combat is a shining part of the game, which is not something that I really expected because we we really are in this for the story and the characters first and foremost. And I, I actually got to give them a lot of credit, Neil and the company, because I think they showed a lot of restraint by not going too far into the upgrade trees or anything. It's just it's got just enough. And I think that's one of my favorite additions to the game is that there's some tweaks to these systems we understand and know the crafting system, the upgrades, the weapon upgrades and augmentations. But it's not too much. It's not skill trees for days and days. It, it It's like what I always said about Uncharted, where I was so glad that they didn't go down that road where they like there was no upgradable weapons and whatever the case might be. I really loved that they re- showed restraint. And so that's one of Naughty Dog's talents is uh, not going too far down that road. Yeah. So I uh, I'm down with that. And yeah, we'll talk about more when we can spoil it for everyone. We're not going to do that here. Frobafet uh, Frobafet <laughs> wrote into us, said, hello, COVID Colin and Corona Chris. Quick question regarding The Last of Us 2 sales numbers. With the lack of entertainment options for people this late spring and summer, no movie theaters, concerts, amusement parks due to COVID, how much do you think this will impact part two sales numbers greatly for the better or worse? Personally, for the most part, I'm loving the game and story so far and can't wait to hear how both of you feel about it. 
So there's not anything from Sony yet, as far as I can tell about sales numbers, but, but apparently this might be the fastest and strongest selling and quickest selling PlayStation 4 exclusive ever. Mm-hmm. And that's not a huge surprise. I don't know how much is that is being contributed to that by a lack of under- other entertainment options. I think this game is authentically a game people are really excited about and looking forward to playing. And it looks like it's going to surpass Spider-Man as far as its quick selling nature. And I would imagine it's going to pass Uncharted 4 as far as the best selling exclusive on the console. But yeah. Are you surprised by that at all? Do you think it has anything to do with this lack of options this summer? I think it probably would have broken those records without it, but I do think it's definitely bolstering it at least a little bit. Um, you know, when you don't have anything else to do, you're probably more likely to, you know, invest yourself in something like this than you would be otherwise. Uh, I don't know if that's really like a majority of people. I really doubt it. But uh, this, I, I feel like it'd be impossible to suggest that it wasn't helping it in some way. But yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense to me that it's it's selling a lot. It, it's coming out at the end of the PS4's life cycle. You know, pretty much. The overwhelming majority of PS4s that are out in the wild are already out there. The install base is huge. Um, the hype is huge. It's a very long-awaited title, and it's a game that everybody's talking about, even if people hate it, the people are talking about it, and that makes people curious. Yeah, I mean, even just, like, the way that people were talking about the leaks made me curious. Like, if I... T- there's a pretty good chance that if I wasn't doing this podcast that I I might have not gotten around to this game for, like at least like a couple weeks you know what i mean because it's like i didn't really gel that much with the first one i was like i'll I'll pick it up on ps5 or something you know but the conversation about it and the fact that it was so divisive got me interested enough to actually want to have played it like immediately even without the necessity of playing it immediately for the for the podcast sure so yeah that makes yeah that makes perfect sense i i think that there's I don't know. There's so much to consider with this game. I just think it's more of a cultural moment for PlayStation gamers than just the game itself, which is why I think part of the story, not the story of the game, but just the story of talking about the game has to include extraneous things like the hype, like the pedigree of the studio and other things of this nature. And so it's a complicated. I I, I actually am going to play it a second time. I usually when I play a game and I know we're going to talk about it, I like to jot down some notes and everything. I've not done that at all with this game. I just want to play it. And I I don't want to get too caught up in the moment to moment thing. I want to know how I feel at the end of it. And then I'll go back and really tear it apart as far as the game is concerned, for better or for worse. But yeah, I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited to see through, see it through to the end. I was I probably should have been done with it by now, but Mass Effect was interrupting me a little bit. So yeah. we'll get back to it and we'll have that. We'll record that. And that'll be the next episode of Sacred Symbols Plus, like I said. So you guys can look forward to that. For sure. Uh, Finally, Chris, I did want to talk about this one thing because I I wanted to have a candid moment with the audience. I always like to be honest with the audience about stuff uh, and what I'm thinking. Mohammed Yazdani wrote into us and said, hey, Colin and Chris, hope you guys are well. First time I'm posting a question. Well, welcome, Mohammed. I at times can't help but feel in the games industry that there can be a conflict of interest between reviewers and developers. Now, this may happen in other industries, but I do notice some reviewers are very close with certain developers in terms of friendship. I won't name any specifics, but I think you'll get my point. I can only imagine it being difficult to review a game from someone who would be a close friend. And at times with The Last of Us 2 reviews, I couldn't help but feel this at times. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with it at all, because sometimes I feel like I could get in the way of an objective reviewer score. Should there be more distance between developers and reviewers or press to maintain professionalism? Maybe this happens and I don't know. In some ways, it's nice to see the casual interaction on Twitter between the two sides. But I do feel now it's something worth discussing. Am I talking out of my ass? Is this a sensible point at all? Well, let me know. Take care. It's funny, Chris. I had a moment that I think I'd like to talk to the audience about 
Sure. This when I was playing the game. So Neil Druckmann is a buddy of mine. Everyone knows that, I think, on the show now. And he's the creative director of the game and the writer of the game and the vice president of Naughty Dog. And I had these funny moments in the game with I was like collecting these bad screenshots of the game and I was going to post them on Twitter without any explanation. And something came over me where it was in the middle of the night, first of all. So I, I was like, oh, I should wait until the morning. Anyway, no one's going to see it. You know, like the uh, the online personality that I am. But also... <laughs> I was like, you know, this is mean and I don't want to hurt Neil's feelings. That's something that actually came into my mind. Yeah. And that's just me being honest. Now, I wouldn't mind. And as you can see, because I've already talked negatively about the game, I don't mind talking about the game negatively in context. But for some reason, with that particular series of screenshots, which I just didn't post at the time, I, I that did come to my mind where I'm like, this is a this maybe is a conflict of interest in some way. And I don't think I would give two shits about most games and making some and hurting someone's feelings about their games. You know, it's like that's just the nature of the beast. So I wanted to throw that out there because that's something that I know people have been talking about recently and in lots of different contexts. And I think the only way you can really equip the audience with the knowledge that they need to know what your own biases are is to tell them. Yeah. And so we've really tried to do that. And I tried to do that with the games that I have biases towards. And I'm not even saying games, but just people I know, like I'm really close to the guys at Insomniac. That's definitely going to play a role for me in some way, even if it's subconsciously. And so what do you think about that? I mean, how do you feel about what I just said? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. I think I think I think generally people are more empathetic to people they know. Like, uh, obviously, like if you see some if you see a friend tweet out something that's like really dumb, you're not going to lay into him in the same way that you would lay into some random or like or somebody who's like gone after you in the past. It's like a completely different thing. And that's I think is natural. I think really the only necessary step is to just make that information clear or like if you have the option and if you work at like an outlet, just like recuse yourself. Like that's a thing that you can do. You could be like, hey, listen, you know. I, I could review this game like if you're an IGN, it's like, hey, I could review this game and I, I think I could I think I could do it pretty objectively. But, you know, I do have this relationship with the creator or I have this relationship with the creative director. And I think, you know, it'd probably be best if somebody else handles this. That's a professional way to do it. If you don't want to just come out and say like, hey, you know, you know, I know this person. So that's that's worth mentioning. I, I don't know. It's weird because like I, I understand the the comparison between like the movie industry and and like you know, other industries, but like Quentin Tarantino, you know, isn't, isn't like a celebrity in the same way that like Neil Druckmann or Ken Levine is. It kind of reminds me of like content creators where it's like, you know, shoe on head isn't like Meryl Streep. You know what I mean? (laughs) But like the, but but like the audiences for both of those people are, are pretty huge. And the only real difference between like a celebrity and like a YouTuber or like a content creator or I would even say like a game developer is that like there's just some weird invisible line in the kind of fame that it is. So I don't know if it's really all all that necessary to be like, hey, you know, journalists can't involve themselves with developers because I, I, I ultimately like a game is the work of like hundreds of people. You know, so it's not like one person yeah. making a thing. It's not like Quentin Tarantino who has like final say on everything. It's it's usually like a big squad of people like cutting things. And like usually at the end of the game, at the end of the development cycle, the thing that you started making isn't even what you 
isn't even what it started as anymore. Like it, it it's there's so many factors in game develop game development, and I, I don't even, I don't know if there is an answer to this. You know? Yeah, it's tough. Like I was just surprised by that feeling I felt, and yeah. I wanted to talk about it because I was like, "Huh, I usually don't really give a shit." I guess this does speak to some sort of bias towards my friendship with Neil, even though we talk. And because I'm also friends with Ken Levine and others, where it's like, and the, like I said, the guys at Insomniac, Marcus Smith, and James Stevenson, and we still talk candidly about all those games. So I don't think it really matters that much. But I did catch myself in a moment. Yeah, where I did make a decision based on the fact that I didn't want to hurt someone's feelings out of context. And I think that's actually actually kind of a good instinct. But, you know, in the snark in the yeah. snarky world of social media. But <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting, too, because like a contract of interest just kind of leads you to being like a, a better person because you could just be totally you could be totally honest about like your feel like I know I know some people who work on I know a couple of people who work on Halo like they follow me and I would have no issue if the next Halo is terrible, I would have no issue being like, this is not what I wanted. And I would have no issue like railing on it. And I would, I would have no problem with that at all. But I would probably think twice about like being a snide asshole about it. You know what I mean? Which is probably, no, totally, yeah. Yeah. Which, which probably is an instinct that we should have regardless. Uh, I don't know if that's really plausible because I know that I would have a hard time sticking by that really because it's just the temptation is so fun and like, Twitter, Twitter is like, it exists almost solely for that. The way they formatted it and the way that quote tweeting works. It's like, it's almost built for bullying. <laughs> it's like a really weird design philosophy with Twitter. But I actually think it's just completely unhealthy, like the website as a whole. But Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. I have that moment of realization pretty often where I'm like, wow, this place sucks. But you have to be on it. It's like, it, it's such a necessary part of the industry that it's like, like if Twitter went away tomorrow, I would, I would not feel bad at all. Yeah, if everyone lost it, then yeah. I wouldn't feel bad. You know, if we all lost that advantage to talk to our audience and advertise our products and whatever the case might be. If I had like real fuck you money too, I wouldn't care either. I would just be like, all right, I'm out. But it is useful in its way, but it's it's like many things on the internet, it's been bastardized. But nonetheless, I did want to talk about that and would love to hear people's feedback on that. It was just a moment of clarity I had for better or for worse. And uh, you can tell me how you feel. Chris... We have a lot of news to get through this week. I do want to say that the first issue we're going to talk about is one that shit ton of people wanted to talk about. I wasn't initially going to even bring this up on the show because I don't know that I have much to add to it, but maybe I do. But I want to say beforehand, this is a very sensitive issue. It's one that a lot of people are really inquiring about and want to know about and are asking us about. And it's a situation that I might be able to give a little bit of insight into because I worked at one of these places that's kind of embroiled in this. Mm -hmm. But I do want to say that everything we're going to say and talk about is nothing more than allegations at this point. There has been some acknowledgement of, of things in that nature. But I just want to say, like, we're not a court of law. You shouldn't go bother people. Let's let things play out. Let's let people be heard and all of that. Yeah. So I just want to throw that out there before I say anything else. All right. So here we go. Number one. Allegations of sexual harassment and other forms of misconduct have roiled the games industry over the last week, stretching across scores of accusations made by Twitch streamers, YouTubers, media personalities, game devs, publishers, and others. The accounts are far too many to discuss in detail here, but there are two scenarios that have specifically to do with game developers of note, and so we'll talk about those, especially because there seems to be some sort of professional resolution to both of them. For starters, games writer Chris Avalone has been accused, according to Kotaku, quote, of using his stature in the video game industry to prey on women, and quote, according to multiple allegations. 
These allegations include sexual harassment, groping, and more. And Avalon appears to have vaguely apologized on Twitter for his behavior, though he hasn't spoken at any more length about the allegations. Avalon has been involved in writing and nerd culture for nearly three decades, making his name as a designer and writer on games like Fallout 2, Planescape Torment, Icewind Dale, Knights of the Old Republic 2, Neverwinter Nights 2, Fallout New Vegas, Wasteland 2, FTL, Pillars of Eternity, The Prey reboot, and more recently, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the upcoming System Shock reboot, and Dying Light 2. The developer of the latter, Techland, has dismissed him from the team as a result of these allegations. The other notable allegation is perhaps a little more dubious in nature, though it still has an, it still has and had a lasting impact. Ash, uh, Ashraf Ismail, the creative director of Assassin's Creed Valhalla, was outed on Twitter for conducting a lengthy affair with an industry streamer behind his wife's back. Following the allegations, he tweeted out, quote, I am stepping down for my beloved project to properly deal with the personal issues in my life. The lives of my family and my own are shattered. I am deeply sorry for everyone hurt in this, end quote. He's not fired or permanently leaving Ubisoft, however. It's a leave of absence. Ismail has been at Ubisoft for some time. He was the creative director of Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, launched in 2013, and Assassin's Creed Origins, launched in 2017 as well. So we have some follow-up questions to get into, and we can talk about other things. But overall, Chris, what is your feeling, not only on these specific allegations that have been brought up or situations, but just generally what's happening in the industry right now? Talk to me a little bit about how you feel. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's a complicated situation because I, I definitely like I have a lot of female friends and I've I've been to, you know, cons and, and I've been out with them and, and seen seen enough shit to kind of know on a gut feeling that a lot of the things that people come out about aren't lies because I've seen so much of it just in person. So my immediate assumption with all this stuff is like, yeah, it's probably true. Unless I have any insight otherwise. It's like, in my opinion, it's like, yeah, it's probably true. I'm not going to go out and like make claims as if they're like totally, you know, verifiable. And I'm not going to like tear people down uh, based on stuff that you just, there is no proof of. But at the same time, it's like I tend to believe a lot of the stuff. Again, just just from seeing a lot of it. <laughs> it's really not that yeah. difficult to believe when... Especially if people have like a lot of history with it. If if it's like a random thing where it's like just this one incident where it's like, oh, what really? You know, that might be a different story. But the the ish the the Assassin's Creed thing is confusing though because that seems like a that just seems like a personal issue. Yeah, you know I mean that's yeah. So I agree with you there. I think that I'm in agreement with you. First of all, that a majority of these claims are certainly true or at least have the patina of being true, because I don't understand what a woman or a man, because men have also come out to make allegations of sexual harassment and assault and whatever. Yeah. Th- there's nothing to gain from that. I don't understand the argument that you see in some circles where it's like a cloud argument and stuff. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, yeah. it's not. You a- can really potentially ruin your life by coming out, even though you were the victim. So I don't see that. I, I agree with you. I don't see how it could possibly yeah. be. Well, that's some of you know a lot of these are yeah. fake. Well, well, there are. I, I would say like probably like four percent max of all of these a- accusations are probably false because there are like crazy, crazy people who just like I think that there's like there's a, some a subsection of women who might feel addicted to like the shame or or, or like not the shame but like the the pity because I did like there was like a big story like i think a couple years ago of like this girl who cheated on her boyfriend with two football players and they and she was like oh well it was sexual assault even though like she just didn't want to seem like a cheater so she ruined these guys lives she actually got i think time in in jail or after it was discovered that it was bullshit so it does happen but it's such a rare occurrence 
in the grand scheme of things that I don't think I, I, I would say don't harass people for coming forward. You know, you can oh, have yeah, you can ha- you can yeah. have your own like suspicions about like, OK, well, that that doesn't seem you, you can have those suspicions. But ultimately, like. I don't, I don't know, man, I just I, I feel like presuming innocence is almost just as weird as presuming guilt. You just kind of have to take the stories as they come and just sort of make your own decision and, and leave that up to you, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think that most of these accusations are, are true. I don't see what people really like you said, certainly there are liars out there, people that yeah. say these things ruin people's lives. And this goes back to like the Duke lacrosse case and another thing. I mean, there's a there's a lot of that stuff for sure. And it always does a disservice to the real victims, whether it's a racial crime or a sexual crime, whatever the case might be. So it's always a shame to hear about those things. But th- you're right. It does happen. But generally speaking, I just Occam's razor suggests, you know, simplest explanation, fewest assumptions that these things are true, because I think that a lot of women especially can really hurt themselves just by saying these things, especially if they're going after powerful figures. So, yeah, I think it's good that people speak, speak their their mind and come out about what's going on. And I don't really buy this clout argument very much. But I will say that there are different and you had kind of brought this up in passing. There are different degrees. And I feel like a lot of stuff is getting blurred together. And I don't know enough. I actually reached out to a friend of mine, a uh, media figure, just to kind of get some clarity about what was going on. I'm like, what am I missing? Who are, who's being talked about? I know that I'm missing stuff. And he kind of went over some of the stuff with me that's happening. It seems like on one hand, you have like real accusations of like sexual impropriety in some way, like with Chris Avalon, where he was like groping people and sexually harassing them. And then you have stuff with Ashraf Ishmael, where it's like, okay, he cheated on his wife. That's a more that's a moral question. I don't know that that should be I guess the woman has every right to out the guy if, if she wants. I mean, that's kind of the game you're playing. But I don't know that that's like he's not losing his job, it seems like. But I don't know that that's like worth like stepping away from your gig unless that's something you really wanted to do because you need to tend to your wife and your family and figure out what's going to happen. But I think that's the one downside to this is that it's like it's putting all of these allegations and and point, finger pointing into the same column. Yeah. But there are different degrees of what happens. I think it's different to be raped or sexually assaulted. I think it's different, therefore, to be sexually harassed. And then I think it's different to be like cheated on or cheating on someone. You know? Yeah. And I think it's I think it should be OK to say that and to kind of assume that people are going to differentiate between all of those things because they're not all created equal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, I, I don't if you if you're cheating on your wife, you're like you're an asshole. But it's that's not like illegal. You know, right. This isn't like. We don't have like a Ten Commandments legal system. Like you're not gonna be thrown in the brig for 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 infidelity. Like that's that's just like you're you're kind of a dick and you need to work on yourself. Definitely. But like if you're sexually harassing people for like years upon years, it's like that's that's yeah, that's a that's it's a problem. It's a problem for you, and it's also just a problem for your for your brand in general. You know, I, I yeah, and I also think it speaks to a power imbalance, like not only between men and women, and again, men have also accused have been accused. And I don't think any woman have come through as as the culprit, although I, I maybe I, I haven't seen everything. This is happening like a mile a minute. Yeah. But it speaks to a power imbalance, not only between the genders, but also between people in positions of power and people that need access or want a job and want opportunity and how that's used against them. And, and that's really fucked up and something that needs to be discussed and talked about openly because it's unacceptable. And 
so I feel for these w- women and men that are coming forward and telling their stories, but I think we have to kind of sift through them as well. And again, to your point, I think that everyone has th- their day in court, whether it's the court of public opinion or their, the real court. And we have to just remember that people have the right to defend themselves and we should look at all of the evidence as it's presented, because certainly some people are presenting and will continue to present to present evidence that suggests that they didn't do anything wrong or that things have been misrepresented. And I know that there's this really and I think an interesting claim. I'm not much of a dater. I was in a bunch of long term relationships, so I wasn't really in the field ever uh, after college. But there's this feeling, I think, amongst some men, especially where it's like, how do you flirt? How do you meet women? How do you put yourself out there? And how is that not misinterpreted? And I think that that with Aziz Asari, that kind of happened where he had just like a bad sexual encounter that was kind of made out to be much more than a, just a bad sexual encounter. Yeah. And so I think that there, there are there are reasonable questions to ask on the other side of this about how men and women meet or men and men or women and women meet and what is flirting and what's acceptable and what's unacceptable and how have things changed and evolved over time and how do you be safe and how do you get consent and all that? I mean, it's a, it's a really it's a bit of a, a minefield and I, I'm just not familiar with it because I just was with a few women as, as an adult for yeah, a long period yeah. of time. So I, I didn't have to ever like figure out that endemic knowledge, you know? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm out in the field a lot these days <laughs> and uh, I, I gotta say I have had no, I, I just don't feel that pressure. I don't know if it's just like, there's like a, a nerd thing in me that just sort of assumes nobody wants anything to do with me anyway. So I just yeah. wait. So I just wait until it's like abundantly clear. <laughs> that I have like an obvious go ahead and I've had no issues at all. I, I really do think like I, I will say I think a lot of the people who are talking about like, oh, it's it's really difficult to flirt now are people who are either currently married and are not flirting or like just aren't in, in the dating scene because I, I just I, I really don't think it's it's that difficult. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's just me and like the, just the way that I go about things. But it seems like totally the same to me as it was a long time. Just don't be just don't grope people. Like, I don't know. Right. I just feel like it's super. Well, easy. that goes without saying that goes without saying I, I, I don't. You should keep your hands off of people and get consent for all that stuff. I was speaking more towards some people's concerns that I read about. Yeah. Just the more verbal aspects right, right. of it and how you meet and how you flirt and how you send signals. I get it. I mean, it's a it's a different because you're right. I mean, it's really not. It doesn't sound like it's really that difficult of an ordeal, but I'm also not out there. I'm also in my mid 30s, so I'm sure things have changed a lot since I was young. But yeah, I, I just wanted to throw that out there as the other side. I, I think generally speaking, we have to just hear everyone. We can all make our own assumptions, but I'm also against a person being unilaterally ruined without yeah, yeah. being a chance to admit what they did or to defend themselves. And then we can kind of sift through it from there. So I think a lot of this stuff is still in play, but I think a lot of people wanted us um, to talk about it. And we have a few follow-ups that I wanted to get into. Uh, A good one here from Mike Urich wrote in and said, or Urich maybe, hello, gentlemen, this isn't a question, but a comment for Colin specifically. I don't want to pressure you into addressing this, but after witnessing what has been going on in in other communities over the weekend and into this week, I just wanted to thank you for creating a community where all ideas and people are welcome. Ironically, in a community that was originally started and based around politics, you have fostered a community where people can coexist and come together away from politics because of our love for PlayStation and video games. It doesn't matter what your skin color is, what your gender is, what your sexual preference is, what political affiliation you may have, what country you are from or how much money you have. 
You have welcomed all voices while many other places seem to be happy to exist inside a bubble and an echo chamber. And while you do hold strong political beliefs, you do not silence or censor those that have opposing viewpoints. So I just want to say thanks. It's awesome to be a part of this community where you can all just be comfortable being ourselves. I'm proud to be a fan and we'll continue to support you. Well, thank you, Mike, for that. I'm proud of what we built here, Chris. And I, I wanted to read that aloud, not just to pat ourselves on the back, although that's always nice to do, but to say like, yeah, you're you're welcome here. It really doesn't matter who you are, how you identify, what your gender is, where you're from, skin color. I don't care about any of that. Just don't be a dickhead. And if other people are being a dick or inappropriate, then in our community, then escalate that. Find me and talk to me about it and I can look into it for you uh, because we don't want any of that stuff in our community. We want to have a welcoming big tent where a lot of people are involved and a lot of people are safe and whatever. And while speaking your mind and and whatever, we have an inappropriate show here. But there's a difference between being inappropriate or R-rated or NC-17 rated and then, you know, being really inappropriate with your hands, inappropriate with your language, whatever the case might be. So it's important to remember that in our yeah. community and in, and in all communities as well. KB wrote into us and said, hey, gents, did the indefinite delay of Dying Light 2 have anything to do with the sexual harassment allegations involving the now former writer, Chris Avalone? Or are these two separate cases? What does this mean for the plot of the game now? Do you think Techland is going to scrap Chris's story and start anew? Thanks. No, I don't think these delays have anything to do with each other. And Chris's work is probably done on the game, you would assume. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, so I would assume they're not going to change anything. It, It remains to be seen. Maybe he won't get credited for writing it, but... I don't know. I don't know how that's all going to work out, but I wouldn't. I, they're not going to scrap the game and rewrite it and do the VO again. And no, there's no way that's going to happen. Uh, all right. Let's get into some of this stuff. I'm going to read these next two together because they both speak to the same thing that I can speak to. And a lot of people wrote in about this. So we'll talk about it and be as candid as possible. David Portnov wrote into us and said, hi, Colin and Chris. What are your thoughts on all the allegations that have been coming out in the games industry over the past few days? I'd especially like to know what Colin thinks about everything that has been brought to light about IGN's former management. And Kevin White wrote into us on Patreon and says, hey, guys, with the recent accusations against Steve Butts and others at IGN, I just wanted to know what Colin's thoughts are. Altano tweeted that he and Colin got screamed at just for asking to have separate hotel rooms. And uh, Mitch also tweeted that he and Colin had a similar separate interaction with Steve. Allegations against Steve aren't new, but this was the first time I can remember seeing Colin's name brought up as related to all this. If you care to not answer, I understand, but just wanted to get your side on what happened this past weekend. Thanks as always for all that y'all do. Well, Chris, obviously a lot of people are really interested in my take on this from IGN's perspective because I worked there for so long. Yeah. I worked for a lot of the people's name that whose names are being mentioned, specifically uh, Steve Butts, Tal Blevins, and Casey Lynch are the are three big names that are being brought up. I worked at, under all three of those guys. So, uh, and I've known, I knew Tal and Steve since I was 18. So... It's uh, these are names that I'm familiar with. These are people that I know. And I want to speak carefully here because I, I don't know. First of all, I, I don't know what's true and what's not. And, I, and actually, a lot of the people making accusations, I don't know them either. A lot of the stuff seemed to have happened after I left. So I don't know that I can speak to the, the culture there from when a lot of the stuff was purportedly happening from a sexual point of view, because a lot of the sexual allegations were being made. I left in 2014. A lot of these people weren't even hired when I was there. So I don't know what happened with that. But I can speak to some of the allegations of being like kind of treated badly, generally speaking. Now, I want to just reiterate at the top, like I did at the top, that I don't know what's true and what's not. These people are being accused of things. They could be false. They could be real. 
let's keep them as accusations until we have more information on that stuff. I think that that's really important. Steve Butts was a longtime IGN PC editor. He left actually to went to the, and went to the Escapist, and then came back. I think in 2012 ish and became first he was managing editor and then he was the editor in chief. He was managing editor under Casey Lynch, and um, I never liked Steve that much. Uh, I tried to like Steve. I think that he was interesting. We had a lot of bad interactions with each other. And I'm not saying they're anything like that's not on the level. Like we just had a lot of screaming matches with each other. I was the senior editor and he was the editor in chief. So we were multiple positions apart from each other. But I had this kind of aura at IGN where I wasn't really afraid of being fired. So I felt like I could speak my mind to management and do what I needed to do. And Steve didn't like that very much. I will say that um, when we quit IGN in October of 2014, we were staying on until the end of 2014. But when when Greg and I quit and started Kind of Funny, Steve tried to fire me at that point. Um, And I've never talked about that openly. But when we told him that we were giving him three months notice, he said uh, he was trying. He tried to fire me at that point. And Per Schneider stepped in and said, you're not firing Colin. And, uh, you know, I don't know if firing is the right word, but it's just as much as being like, you're out, you're done. You know, and yeah, that was probably the most negative interaction I had with Steve. I, I remember a few instances of even crying with Steve because I was so mad and frustrated with him. But uh, the first sexual allegations or sexually related allegations in some respect, I remember coming from when Vince Ingenito was fired from IGN and Steve was later fired because he didn't act on those allegations that were being made against Vince. And what I said to people that I knew at the time was, I don't like Steve. Uh, we didn't get along very well, but that doesn't sound like the Steve that I knew, right? Like that would allow that kind of stuff. But yeah. after hearing more about what the allegations are that people are hearing, it's clear that I just maybe didn't know Steve very well. <laughs> and so that's where I'll leave that. I never heard. And it's important for me to note with the IGN accusations. I never heard of anything when I was there. And this is I was talking to someone about this. I never heard of any anything that when I was there that suggested that this level of dysfunction was happening and this level of impropriety was happening. I don't know that I would have been privy to it because I was somewhere kind of in the middle of the editorial staff as far like there's associate editor, well, there's freelancers and writers, associate editors, editors, and then I was a senior editor. And then above me, it was like the managing editor, the editor at large, the editor in chief. So it's not, the, and then like the, the publisher and stuff. So there's not, I wouldn't necessarily be privy to everything that was happening, but I wanted to say that it didn't seem to sync up with the Steve that I at least knew. Like I, I thought Steve was kind of an asshole, but at times, but I didn't know him to be immoral, let's say, right? I didn't know. He seemed like he was a religious guy. He had a family or has a family and a wife. So I was like, you know, I, I, that doesn't sound right, but there's obviously stuff I'm missing with the Vincent Genito situation. But with all the new accusations, like I said, it seems like maybe I just wasn't aware of what was happening. Casey Lynch was editor-in-chief of IGN for a little while, and then he left and went to Crystal Dynamics, where he still is at Crystal Dynamics. In fact, the new Avengers uh, trailer that just came out was narrated by him. And a lot of people were, thought that that was weird because accusations are being made against him, too. Now, the Casey I knew was unprofessional and, and I think out of his depth as editor in chief of IGN. But he seemed like a and was, in my experience, a friendly guy. Like he was a he was kind of a clown yeah. and all of that. So it's a it's like. Again, like maybe I just didn't know these guys as well as I thought because I would have never expected his name to be wrapped up in some of these accusations as well. And some of the accusations being made against him are pretty serious. And again, I don't know what's real and what's not. But yeah, so it's it's 
not the Casey I knew, right? But again, maybe the Casey I knew is not the, the real Casey. I don't know. And then Tal was editor in chief right when I got hired. And then when I was a freelancer, actually, and then he became like in he, he basically walked in the management. Now, I always got along really well with Tal. I knew Tal since I was a young, a young man, 18 years old. And uh, same with Steve, actually. But I got along well with Tal. What I realized about him at my time at IGN was that people, a lot of people really didn't like him and were pretty open about saying it. And I always tried to kind of stay out of it because it felt really personal to me. Mm -hmm. But what maybe was the case, Chris, is that I was just kind of immune in some way to what the way he was treating other people. Because a lot of the stuff that I was hearing about him just from working with him is true. He was a micromanager. He would email people constantly. He didn't really seem to do very much. At, at certain points, like it was, it was kind of, we were kind of confused about what he did. I mean, that was a joke at IGN. I was like, what does he do really? You know, and eventually he was let go uh, after I left because uh, I guess there was a redundancy or whatever. Uh, the allegations made against him are interesting because, again, that's not really the guy I knew, but it doesn't mean that it's not the guy that that who he is. I actually like would watch his house sometimes when he would go and like go water his plants and shit. The interesting thing about these three guys, though, especially Stephen Tal, is that they're really close friends. In fact, Stephen Tal go back to childhood together. They're from the same town. They grew up together and they came up in the industry together. So it's clear that there was a boys club in some way with them. And a lot of people would say that back in the day, too, that they, you know, Steve was brought back because he was friends with Tal. Casey was brought in because he's friends with Tal. It wasn't necessarily based only on talent or like them being able to fill the position. So I can't speak to the questions we were asked by David and Kevin and many other people uh, via Patreon and elsewhere. I can't speak to the accusations being made against them because I'm not familiar with those accusations. I wasn't really there as far as some of the biggest improprieties. But I can say that the story that Altano told is true. I was in that room. We were screamed about that. I was in that room with Mitch. And to me, being a 20 something year old in corporate America, I my assumption was just I'm like, this is kind of the way it goes. Like bosses are mean. Sometimes we get yelled at. Sometimes we work really hard. And this is kind of the way it is. I don't really have any experience other than working at IGN, you know? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I worked at, I, I started working at IGN when I was 17. I became an editor at 22. And then when I was 31, I left. And yeah. then I found it kind of funny. And now I found it Collins SN. So that's it. That's like my whole corporate experience. So I just don't know. I don't have the context or the insight to know what's real and what's not. I think it's possible and if maybe even likely that I was inoculated in some way from the toxicity that was happening with others because I was part of the old crew of editors. And it seems like a lot of these issues happened with the newer crew of people. Right, right. There's like a there's like a new blood kind of kind of thing. Right. Like we, we would call it the old class and the new class. Like I was part of the old cool class of kids. Right. And there was like a whole new class of people that were brought in that definitely didn't have the same respect from the from management, definitely didn't have the same respect from the audience. I just didn't know how serious it was. You know what I mean? I thought it was more of a thing of like, well, I made my bones. I was the shitty fucking freelancer and intern. I was made to review all the bad games and told I was I didn't really matter and was treated like shit sometimes. And it wasn't anything like what's being described here, but I was hazed and stuff like that. And, and I thought that that culture kind of changed. But I guess it behind the scenes in this this like sinister underbelly, it didn't. And so that's all I can really say to that. I know people want me want to hear more, but I don't have much more to provide because I have no insight. I know Brian Altano. I know Mitch Dyer. I stand by what they said we experienced. I don't know some of these other people. And so I can't and I wasn't there. So I can just go based on their word. 
And so I'm going to believe what they have to say. But people looking for some sort of corroboration, I don't have it because I would be glad to provide it if I did. And if this shit was happening around me, you would have probably known because I would have said something. So I, I just don't have much more information, but I didn't want to just ignore it. Yeah. Because yeah, I felt yeah. like that would be conspicuous. So what do you think of all that? I mean, does that make sense to yeah. you? I, I mean, I think it, it does make sense. I don't have much uh, cor- corporate experience either. I, I, I've pretty much been doing this like my entire uh, adult life. I worked at Sears for a little bit. And that was that was like the only uh, that was the only real job I had. But, uh, you know, I, I think that really is just the culture in a lot of jobs where it's just like if you're like new or if you're just like the underling, you just kind of get treated like shit. Like it's it's just kind of part of it, which really I don't know if it really should be. You know, I'm not saying that is like, a, oh, it's just how it is. Deal with it kind of thing. I, I, I think that's just the reality of the current situation. And it would be great if it wasn't that way. But I remember like I was I was like a merchandising and customer assist at like Sears. I would just go into I would go into the store at like 6 a.m. and like put stickers on everything. Basically, I would put on like the, the prices and like if there was a sale ticket, I would print them out. And like the salespeople were like above us and they just like they would just sometimes just leave. And then like people would come up like, hey, can I buy a TV? And I'm like, I'm not a salesperson, but I can sell you a TV. And then I would sell them a TV and then they would get the commission from it. And yeah, it's just, that's like, fucked up. And it's just yeah. like crazy shit. And I, that's. So I, I don't know, man, I, I, my gut tells me a lot of this is probably true. Like, you know, just cause yeah. I, I know what it's, I don't know what it's like to be a woman necessarily working in a, in a field like this. And I don't even know what it's like to work in, in this industry specifically, but I know what it's like to be an underling. And I know definitely that people just have power trips, man. The Stanford prison experiment is like one of the most basic, you know, one of the most insane things that ever happened in like psychological study. And it's. I don't think it's I don't think it's not a useful study. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, be, yeah. Power does crazy shit, even if it's just like a menial amount of power. As long as it's measurable power over other people, people will take it. Yeah, very well said. I I, I, be, I believe the accusations as well. I, I've done a lot of soul searching myself just from the perspective of, wow, like I thought I knew people. Another person that's being brought up is Fran Mirabella, who I know very well. I actually consider Fran a friend of mine. And he's the the things that people said, uh, specifically Tina Sanchez, who I used to work with, said that he said, I was like, holy shit, that doesn't sound like Fran at all. Uh, But he admitted it, you know, and it really just goes to show you that. And he apologized and it seems like things are fine. And but I don't know, man. It just I've done a lot of soul searching and thinking just because I'm like, wow, how little did I really know these people that I thought I really knew? And what kind of culture was going on behind closed doors here that I wasn't aware of? I was a pretty it's concerning to me because I was pretty involved in IGN, especially towards like the last half of my time there. Like I had some power there. I, I was an influential member of the team and I was shielded by this some or from this somehow. And I don't know. I'm, I, I wish I was on better terms with some people at IGN so I can get their thoughts on it. But that's those days have passed. But I will say that I, I, I with Steve particularly, I just try to keep my bias against him out of it. And I'm just going to try to just take things as they come, because I think I brought it up in the past. Like I tried to quit during E3 in 2014 too over Steve and Pear and Tal kind of stopped me from doing it because Steve wrote that last Guardian story about how it was canceled. Totally embarrassed me embarrassed our PlayStation coverage during E3, totally botched it and fucked it up. And uh, I really couldn't stand him after that at all. You know, so I I understand that I have this personal bias against him, especially because, again, he tried to fire me uh, when I (laughs) when I quit. 
Yeah. And, um, and because of pair, I wasn't fired at that moment. And, um, yeah, it's, so I'm trying to keep that bias out of it. I don't have that level of bias against Tal and especially against Casey in my personal experiences and certainly not against Fran. But knowing what Fran purportedly said and seems to have admitted it, he said, and I, I, I like when I was an intern at IGN, I slept on Fran's couch in 2003, you know? Yeah. So I go way back with him. So it's just like, I don't know, man, it's. It's a confusing wake up call to me about what was going on. And also a lot of the women that I worked with, I'd be interested to hear from them, like Christine Steimer, who I lived with for several years, Dana Jonga Ward and Leah Jackson, who works at Riot now. And I'd be interested to know what their experiences were like, because I knew those girls, especially Christine and um, Leah, really well. I used to go out to lunch all the time with Leah. I lived with Christine. I wasn't really hearing very much of this. And so I wonder how endemic it was from their perspective, too. I think they have a lot of valuable insight. And then also, I would be interested to just hear from people in the industry and like if they had experiences from outside of IGN's walls with these people, because IGN is interesting where it's very male in some parts of the site, obviously, but it's actually very female in other parts of the site, like the sales team. I dated a girl on the sales team when I first started there. That's like all women, you know, Um so I'd also be interested to know the inter interdepartmental dynamics as well and what they might have known or not known. And I don't know. It's it's a lot of stuff, but I've been gone for so long that I have really no recourse in which to investigate it. Yeah. You know? So I'm kind of with everyone else where I'm just watching it unfold. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that. You guys can give us your feedback. We can always follow up on that next week. All right. Let's get into the other news here, Chris. Uh, number two. The very last PlayStation 4 first party exclusive of any consequence, Sucker Punch's Ghost of Tsushima, has officially gone gold, according to a post on its social media channels. This means that the core game development is finished and the title can be submitted for certification, printing and publishing. Ghost of Tsushima is set to come to PS4 on July 17th and is Sucker Punch's first new game in five years. While the studio made its name with the Sly Cooper trilogy on PlayStation 2 in the early aughts, Sucker Punch won the hearts and minds of the PlayStation fan base with its infamous trilogy, which spanned PS3 and PS4 and which began in 2009. Sony purchased the team outright in 2011 and before the acquisition of Insomniac Games last year was Sony's last major first party purchase. Uh, so we're getting pretty close to Ghost of Tsushima. Chris, how are you feeling about it now that we're getting a, a few weeks away? Uh, I, I still feel like it's a little weird that we haven't seen more of it by now, but yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. I think I'm actually kind of, uh, you know, especially just because I'm knee deep into The Last of Us now and that's that experience is probably going to be over pretty soon. I'm I'm looking forward to one last kind of hurrah on the on the system before uh and especially in that style i feel like especially after this like bleak narrative that i'm going through it will probably be cool to just kind of step into the shoes of like a samurai and just be badass for a little bit yeah it won't be quite as grounded i mean it, it's it's dark in its own way but not like this you know <laughs> yeah so uh not with a brutal murder and all these other things that are happening in The Last of Us. So well, I'm sure there's brutal murder in this game, too. But I'm looking forward to it. I think the closer we get to it, the more excited I am to play it. For but, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm keeping an open mind about it. I don't think it's going to be this groundbreaking game, but I think it will be a fitting last hurrah, like you said, for the PlayStation 4. And so we'll be playing that on June or I'm sorry, July. What is it? July 17th, 17th, 17th. There it is. All right, Chris, this next one's for you. Number three, <laughs> the rumors, speculation and gut feelings have been confirmed. A new Crash Bandicoot game is en route. It's called Crash Bandicoot 4. It's about time and will come to PlayStation 4 relatively soon on October 2nd. As an Activision owned IP, it isn't surprising that an Activision owned studio is working on the game, but it is a little surprising what studio that is. Toys for Bob. 
Acquired by Activision back in 2005, Toys for Bob was once known for its Star Control series, before later making the jump helming Activision's once popular Spyro spinoff, Skylanders, which began in 2011 and ran through 2016. Toys for Bob, the porting studio that brought Crash Bandicoot Insane Trilogy to Switch in 2018, but that remake trilogy was natively developed by another Activision-owned studio, Vicarious Visions, which was assumed to be the lead team on any future Crash projects. Vicarious Visions also joined Activision in 2005 and has worked on a ton of games, including ladder titles in the Tony Hawk, Guitar Hero, and Transformer franchises, as well as running support on series like Skylanders and Destiny. They're currently creating Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 Remake, which also comes to PS4 this fall. Crash Bandicoot began in 1996, and its first three games, and a, plus a kart racer, were made by none other than Naughty Dog in their pre-Sony acquisition days. A flood of poorly received games from various studios, including Vicarious Visions, followed, and the series largely went dormant for about 10 years before the Insane Trilogy launched in 2017, followed by a Crash Team Racing remake in 2019, made by another Activision-owned studio, Binox. All right, Chris, Hector Aquendo wrote into us and said, Thoughts and feelings on the new Crash Bandicoot game? Watched the trailer and felt like it was not only a blatant cash grab, but also as if the devs knew what the story for Ratchet 4 was and just copied it. <laughs> what do you think, Chris? I, I thought about you, obviously. I think a lot of our audience thought about you immediately upon seeing this. So what do you think of Crash 4? I'm, I'm excited, man. It, it, looks, it, it looks exactly how I would want a new Crash game to look. It looks like it's delving into a little bit more of the mechanics it looks like it's like evolving a little bit but not straying so far as to not be recognizable as a crash bandicoot game i actually like a lot of the redesigns i think the art style looks really nice if it if it if they can maintain the level of challenge that uh the trilogy has i think it'll be a i think it'll be a solid it'll be a solid game i i really like this uh I really like that it and that trailer ended with uh just a complete dis <laughs> disregard of every single game after team racing. <laughs> thought that was kind of fun. Yeah, it, it is. It remind well, actually remind, I mean, it's not quite as extreme, but it reminds me of, um, what, what happened with, uh, not only Mega Man spanning all those years that not that there were core games between nine and 10 and 11. Um, but the way Arkham Knight or Ar the Arkham Asylum series was treated with, uh, Arkham origins kind of just being ignored. And then they would call the, uh, the, the Arkham trilogy, <laughs> uh, which didn't include Origins for some reason. So Daniel Nichols wrote into us, though, and said, Oi, oi, Savaloys. I still don't know what that means. I, I think someone told me at some point, but I just forgot. So I've just watched the trailer for Crash Bandicoot 4, and the first thing that jumped into my mind was, will this be one be as difficult as the previous three? I, for one, found the remaster trilogy to be very difficult, and I can only put this down to my ever-increasing age. But do you think the new one will be tailored to fans of the original trilogy or trying to get new fans, or maybe a mixture of both? Keep on keeping on, you beautiful bastards. This is a great question, actually, because Crash Bandicoot's really fucking hard. I don't know how it's going to translate to today, but the Crash Insane trilogy seemed to have kept all the difficulty intact. So what do you think is going to happen with this in this regard? I think they'll try to... Uh, I think it's it's probably a mix, but I think they understand that Crash, that Crash trilogy sold a lot because people, like, people really like that kind of challenge and people really like that character and that kind of universe and that soundscape. So I think it, as long as they keep the identity of the game the same... And as long as they have a level of challenge that is, uh, you know, a little bit more modern, I think I think they can make a pretty good game. Honestly, if it's not super difficult, I don't know if I'd mind it either because it just looks like just such a such a nice little game to play. It just looks refreshingly positive, especially after a lot of the stuff that I've been playing. Are you excited that it's soon? I, I like that they kept it secret. Yeah, for so long. yeah, I like that it's I know that it leaked a little bit before they they had a chance to uh, properly unveil it. 
But I, I like that it's soon. I like that I have something to look forward to on this generation of systems that I didn't expect to 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 have. I, I assume that maybe like there was going to be a new Crash game. I just didn't expect it so soon. I didn't expect it to look as good as it does because Crash has like a weird tendency of really overwrought art styles for some reason. They really have a tendency to really, really go overboard with some of this, some of the ways they choose to redesign the characters. But I, I think it all looks right. I think it's it's got some neat little gameplay mechanics. It's definitely taking inspiration from Ratchet and Clank. I don't know necessarily if I don't know necessarily the time stuff because the Crash Bandicoot three was also about time technically. So I, I don't know if it's really that much of a, a ripoff. But I do I do know like there's like grind railing segments which I kind of always thought belonged in Crash anyway. <laughs> But I, I like it. I like what I'm seeing for it. It makes me happy. makes me smile. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, the, the rail grinding, uh, the rail grinding, I should say, yeah. uh, is very ratchet, but ratchet and clank, not ratchet. What does the word ratchet mean, by the way? I've been watching a lot of fight uh, compilations, like street, like, you know, yeah, fights in like 7-Elevens and stuff on YouTube. My assumption is that it means like ghetto. Like when people oh, used, okay. when people used to say ghetto, I, th- I feel like it right. means the same. I don't know if that's true though. I don't know anything about that word. I, I fucking yeah, I hate ratchet. Because like, it's like because I'm watching like rat you know ratchet fight compilation, and I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, it's like being suggested to me now. I'm, I was up to like four in the morning watching these fight compilations, the World Star Hip Hop compilations. They're great. Yeah. Uh, all right, number four. Say goodbye to developer Ready at Dawn. At least if you're a PlayStation fan. The studio has been officially acquired by Facebook to work on the Oculus VR platform and will therefore no longer be available for outside second and third party work. In a blog post on the official Oculus blog, the news was revealed to fans, noting that the team's strong work on VR in recent years, particularly with Oculus, pushed Facebook to acquire the studio outright. Ready at Dawn was founded in 2003 in California, and much of its work was actually done as a second party entity with Sony. Its first three original games were all PSP titles. 2006's Daxter, 2008's God of War Chains of Olympus, and 2010's God of War Ghosts of Sparta. And it got its big AAA break with the PS4 game The Order 1886, which launched in 2015. However, The Order wasn't well-received critically or commercially, leaving Ready at Dawn eager to find a new partner. It found one temporarily with GameTrust, GameStop's publishing arm, which brought Deformers to market in 2017. But since, published, uh, but since has published Oculus-exclusive games beginning in 2017 in the Lone Echo franchise. This doesn't mean the order couldn't get a sequel. Sony owns the IP, not ready at dawn. But this acquisition makes it far more unlikely that it will come to pass. Dante Almo wrote into us and said, what's up, CNC? So with the recent news of Facebook purchasing ready at dawn, are we just completely out of luck for a sequel to the order 1886? Of course, Sony still owns the IP. Which, but what studio would you guys want to tackle a proper sequel? Should it be first or a second party? Thanks for everything you guys do. Keep up the amazing work. So uh, my honest answer to this, Dante, and I'll be interested to see what Chris has to say, but I would have liked to see an Order sequel. As we've said, ad nauseum, the Order 1886 did end on a cliffhanger. But I think it's probably best to just leave it alone at this point. I don't think it dem- there's any demand for first or second party resources to be used for an Order sequel. And clearly, Ready at Dawn sneaking away means that Sony doesn't care that much anyway. Chris, what do you think about this news about Ready at Dawn and the future of the Order and everything else? <laughs> I uh, I think... I don't know. Like I, I, I played a little bit of the order like a long time ago. I don't remember much of it. I, I, I think a sequel could be cool. I, I, I don't know who I would want to work on it though, because I feel like everybody in the Sony ecosystem of uh, developers is already working on things that really play to their strengths for the most part. So I don't really know where I would put it. 
I know I don't really have much interest in an order in an order sequel personally, but if one could exist, I wouldn't be opposed to seeing what could possibly happen with it. You know what I mean? And a new, a new, a new exclusive of like AAA quality with a, an original IP like the Order that Sony owns is I don't think it's ever really a bad thing. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I would still say the Order eighteen eighty six is like one of my favorite like reveal trailers ever. And it, the game just didn't didn't do it. It just didn't achieve what they they set out to achieve. I think that that's pretty much the consensus around that game. But they did build a beautiful world and, a, and an interesting alternate history story and a cool setting. And it would have been cool for them to have explored it more, but th- they're not going to be able to do that. And I just I really don't think you're going to see another one of these. Uh, and I, I, I've said before, I mean, Sony wasn't happy with the Order 1886 behind closed doors before the game came out. They weren't happy with it. So. It's it's not a huge surprise that Ready at Dawn managed to sneak away. They've been working with Oculus pretty closely for a while anyway. It's clear Sony didn't want to re-up with them following the order, even for another game. So what do you think about Ready at Dawn sneaking away? I know that this was a studio for some reason. No offense to them. They're nice guys. I know uh, some of the guys there, but they're not like that great. I, I, I just didn't understand why people were so fixated on them joining Sony when there's like so many other studios that fit a lot better, that make better games. That could have joined. So I don't think that this is much of a loss for Sony or for third parties even. But how do you feel about them sneaking away and kind of going into another uh, entity's first party? Yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's probably a step up for them. I think they're probably doing things that play a little bit more to their strengths. Uh, I mean, being bought out by Facebook is is no failure. I, I, I would love that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... You know, I, I think I think it's it's a, it's an appropriate path for them to take, especially it, especially just because it seems to be where they're interest is you know like if they they were interested in pitching you know sony first party titles if they were interested in in pitching like a new you know uh third person action adventure grimdark you know adventure game they probably would have done it by now and we probably would have seen something out of them by now but it seems like their hearts in vr and uh i think it's i think it's great i'm really happy for them yeah, I'm sure it wasn't a small amount of money that they made selling. And it is interesting that they made their start and made their bones in the industry as a second party for Sony, but just found their way doing something else. And they're just equipped for VR games. And by the way, that Lone Echo series is supposed to be pretty good. So I do want to give them credit for that. I've not played it. I don't have Oculus. I have PSVR, but um, it's supposed to be really good. And they are working on the sequel now, and it must be good enough for them to be acquired during development. It reminds me a lot of Sucker Punch getting bought around Infamous 2's launch which is a good sign for the quality of the game. So we will uh, wish them the very best, but goodbye, Ready at Dawn. It was real. <laughs> All right. Number five, the rumors of a Suicide Squad game being in development at WB, uh, WB's Crown Jewel Studio Rocksteady are true, according to a report on website Eurogamer. The website confirms indications that the game is coming as some website domains have been secured suggesting as such, including the insanely long URL SuicideSquadKillTheJusticeLeague.com, SuicideSquadGame.com was also secured. Rocksteady released its last game, Batman Arkham Knight, on PS4 way back in 2015 and has been largely quiet since, with the exception of its PSVR experience, Batman Arkham VR, which launched alongside the VR unit in 2016. There's more news, though. A URL was also secured by WB for GothamKnightsGame.com, and this is the game that WB Montreal has been uh, long developing and long teasing with the expectation that it will be revealed in August. As the URL suggests... WB Montreal's continuation of the Batman franchise will be called Batman Gotham Knights. 
WB Montreal is perhaps best known for its under underappreciated Batman game Arkham uh, Origins, which we mentioned earlier, which came to PS3 in 2013 and has long been the bastard child of that run of Arkham games, which began in 2009. Sean wrote into us and said, hey, CNC, with the reporting of Rocksteady possibly making a Suicide Squad game called Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League, which I like that name, by the way. Yeah. What kind of gameplay do you think it'll be? Will it be like the Arkham games or something like the Avengers game? What do you think this is, Chris? They've been working on this game for five years. Yeah. Uh, so what do you I have a bad feeling it's an open world game. But what do you what do you think? Maybe I I love the name and the name really gets me excited. The, the idea of like maybe having like some kind of uh, if you had like an Arkham style, if you had like an Arkham slash Hitman style game where you go around and you kill the Justice League. Like you just murder Batman, you just murder like that's. This sounds amazing, like the, as a premise, as like a name anyway. Uh, I I really have no idea what the I I, I know for sure it's going to be a third person action game. Uh, I think that's certainly the thought of them making like a first person game, especially like with all these beloved characters and never having to see them is in, insane. Also, it's just not where their strength is. But I I would bet on something a little bit open world, possibly something like. If not, if not Far Cry, Far Cry esque in the sense that like maybe it's not that op- maybe it's not that open, but I know in the newer Far Cry games you have like targets that you have to take out, and they're all spread out in different parts of the map. It'd be interesting if like you know you pl- you got to choose which character of the Suicide Squad you play, or like maybe it's like a squad game where you go out and you t- tackle each of these superheroes in the Justice League one at a time. Uh, the- I. Just the name of it is like really getting me excited because like I love this premise so much. Yeah, the name is is super cool. So Arkham Asylum, Arkham City and Arkham Knight got progressively more open. Yeah, I would call Metroid. I would call Arkham Asylum more of a Metroidvania game. And then City got pretty open and Knight got even more open. But they're all kind of pseudo open world games because like you're not going into interiors. There's not an incredible amount to do. It's just more of a map. Yeah. So it would be nice for me. If, for me as a player, for them not to go any further than that, because I just first of all, I, I know it's going to be a fucking hundred hour open world game. Like, I, I think it's obvious. And just based on how long they were working on it, they basically developed. Let me think about this here. They developed almost the entire Arkham trilogy in the amount of time that it's been taking them to work on this game. Yeah. And it and by the time it comes out, who the hell even knows when it's coming out? So we could buy even more time. But I just don't want more open world games when they don't have to be open world games. So if it is one, I just hope they're able to justify that. Right. But, but I, I agree with you. I'm excited about the name. I think the name is really cool. What do you, what do you think about uh, Gotham Knights? Do you have any expectations for that? Uh, No, that that name doesn't even really. I, 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 it's so vague to me, like where like I, I genuinely don't even know, like. What the hell? That could possibly even be in reference to like, I'm not really that much of a Batman guy. I'm, I don't know anything about the comics or like I watched the show in like the 90s or like the early yeah. 2000s. And I've seen like the movies on occasion, but I don't know if Gotham Knights is a thing. I, I thought it was going to be like a Court of Owls thing. I think that I think it is going to be that which I'm not really super familiar with, but I'm interested in the the Knights plural Gotham Knights. Yeah, it, that, that, that is the name. It's not Gotham Knight. So uh, I'm sure Batman fans know more or like have more expectations than I do, but I'm excited to play it. I really want to see what WME Montreal can do. I feel like they've been the redheaded stepchild for a while, and it's nice that they get to do a Batman game again, 
because uh, people were pretty harsh about Origins. And I always felt bad for them about how Rocksteady basically never even acknowledged its existence, which I think is kind of fucking weird. Considering they're they're in, considering they're in the same publisher family, I'm like, what? Well, that's kind of weird, you know? Yeah, I I I don't know how I, I understand it honestly. Like, because if you're a developer, right, and you made this trilogy, and then this other studio in your family just sort of makes this this uh, this prequel game. I don't know how the internal politics of like WB works, but like I know if I was at Rocksteady and I wanted to put together a compilation of Arkham games, I would want that compilation to be representative of the work that our studio had made and anything that is just sort of derivative of it or anything that just sort of exists as only because of its uh, of its springboarding off of our work. I I, I don't know. I, I feel like I wouldn't necessarily want like, I wouldn't want Halo Wars in a Halo collection, you know what I mean? Sure, yeah, because Creative Assembly... or Did they Creative Assembly make the first one, too? Yeah, Creative Assembly made... Wait a minute, who made... Oh, my God. Ensemble made the first one. Ensemble, right? Yeah, and Cre- Creative Assembly made the new one. Yeah, which was always... I always I'm fascinated by Halo Wars, too, just from... Creative Assembly is owned by Sega, and they did a... Xbox exclusive. I, I always, I don't know. I think that's just fucking weird. Yeah, but it is really weird. It's also the genuinely the best Halo game in a long time. <laughs> it makes no sense. Yeah, that's what I, that's what I've heard. That's why. Well, you're gonna see more Halo soon. It looks like. Yeah. So we will find out. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know how the internal politics of that works, but I, I, I understand the necess- I understand that it could possibly have been something that they did not necessarily out of malice, but just out of, sort of out of a out of a feeling of just like preserving just what they made and sort of offering what they made as a rock steady collection of, of titles. Sure. That makes sense. And they definitely have the power in that relationship too. I mean, rock steady is the big, the biggest thing basically WB games owns. So I'm sure that much like naughty dog, I'm sure if they did, well, naughty dog did the uncharted trilogy through blue point and golden abyss wasn't in there. So, I mean, it's, it's, it could be the same thing. Yeah, no, exactly. That's exactly the same thing. I think. All right, let's get into the rest of the news here. This is a long one, so just give me a minute. I, I, I want to read this in its entirety. Sure, sure. But uh, yeah, let's uh, see what the audience thinks of this. Number six, are AAA games becoming too long for players to play and too expensive for developers to make? Sean Layden, one-time PlayStation CEO and chairman and longtime PlayStation developer and producer, seems to think so. Website VentureBeat conducted a lengthy interview with Layden, which you guys should all go read, by the way, who departed Sony in 2019 and noted that the industry and the PlayStation brand in particular has pivoted heavily to narrative-driven games in some respect, but that the cost of entry and the cost of development are starting to become seriously unaligned. He told the website in part, quote, I still remember when games would cost $1 million to make. Those days are long gone. The cost of creating games has increased. Some studies show that, that they've gone up two times every time a console generation advances. The problem with that model is that it's just not sustainable. Major AAA games in the current generation go anywhere from $80 million to $150 million or more to build, and that's before marketing. It's a huge upfront cost. Extended over time, it takes three or four or five years to build a game while you're not getting any return on the investment. You just continue to pay into it looking for the big payoff at the end. I don't think in the next generation you can take those numbers and multiply them by two and expect the industry to continue to grow. The industry as a whole needs to sit back and think, what are we building? What's the audience expectation? What is the best way to get our stories across to say what we need to say? That's going to cause the industry to look at the games we're doing, where we're going from there, and what we're putting into them. It's hard for every adventure game to shoot for 50 or 60 hours of gameplay. That's going to be so much more expensive to achieve. 
in the end, you may, get, you may close some interesting creators and their stories out of the market if that's the threshold you want to meet. But if you don't have 50 hours of gameplay, you don't have a game, we need to reevaluate that shibboleth. I think, quote, going into this next generation, not only is that an important role for management in gaming and interactive entertainment, but it's also about evaluating what we can continue to put into games. At what cost can you continue to create these games? Ellipsis. In my experience in 25 years of video gaming, the price of the game has never changed. It's been $59.99 since I started in this business, but the cost of games has gone up 10 times building them. If you don't have elasticity on the price point, but you have huge volatility on the cost line, the model becomes more difficult. This generation is going to see two imperatives collide. How can we look at that and say, is there another answer? Instead of spending five years to make an 80-hour game, what does three years and a 15-hour game look like? What are the costs around that? Is that a full experience? Personally, as an older gamer now, I would welcome the return of the 12 to 15 hour game. I would finish more games, first of all, just like a well-edited piece of literature or a movie. I've been looking at the discipline around that, that containment around that. It could get us tighter, more complete content. It would be something I'd like to see a return to, end quote. When I read that, I was, on a normal week, that would be the biggest news we would talk about. Yeah. Sean Layden has a lot of experience. He was at Sony basically his entire career rising up to CEO of Sony Computer Interactive, rising up to the top of PlayStation's internal studios. And I think we should listen carefully to what he has to say. Declan H. wrote into us on Patreon and says, Hey, CNC. So in a recent article from GameIndustry.biz, Sean Layden talks about the duration of developing modern AAA video games and how, from a financial point of view, it's not going to be sustainable for much longer. He also mentions how the scope of these games keeps getting bigger and bigger every generation, with production costs doubling while the price of games has stayed mostly the same throughout his whole career at PlayStation. Both of you have mentioned in the past that there is room for flexibility when it comes to pricing of video games, and I personally have no problem paying 70 or 80 euro for a larger game. But do you think the wider audience is ready for an increase in pricing, or will we just see the scope of games shrink to slightly shorter games like Uncharted Lost Legacy to keep development costs lower? Thanks for all you do. So Chris, I got to say before I kick it over to you, I fucking called this for years. Yeah. I, when, I was re- when I was reading this, I felt such a re- sense of relief because I'm like, I've been saying this for so long. <laughs> yeah. Everything he said about the cost of games staying the same, about incre- the increasing cost of making games, about how games are getting bigger, about how the arms race seems to be about length and not quality. I felt really vindicated reading Sean Layden's Layden, words. So how do you feel about what he had to say? Yeah, I mean, I think he's right. I think uh, I think what you're probably going to see is you're probably going to see I think you're going to see shorter games and a and a <laughs> increase in price. Honestly, that's that's where I think it's going because uh, even a shorter game now, like a 15 hour game now, is still going to take an insane amount of time because of the level of detail that people expect in those 15 hours. Like you know what I mean? Like The Last of Us is such a is such a detailed game, and it's like there's no way that was cheap. Even if that was even if the game ended halfway, you'd be like that's a that's a lot, that's a lot of work. That went into that. So I, I feel like what, yeah, you're, I, I would love, first of all, like what he said, like a, a 12 to 15 hours. I, I would even, honestly, I'm not even kidding. I would, I would take seven. I would take seven or eight hours. Right. Like, I'm fine with that. As long as that's a good, if that's a good seven or eight hours and it leaves me wanting more, that's amazing. Like, that's great. That's like the best thing you could hope for, actually, because it means that people would be totally willing to see it through in a future installment or, or people would be willing to pick up a, a, a future title. Uh, games don't need to be like 70 or, 70 or 80 hours because like I, I can tell you right now if they if they launched a new Red Dead Redemption if they were like hey Red Dead Redemption 3 comes out in like October I'd be like I guess I'll play that in a f- couple years because I, I've had my I've had my fill dude yeah yeah which might be the wise the wise course of nature that 
Rockstar itself has taken by just not giving us very many of these games. Oh, yeah, which for sure. Is, which is, stands in stark contrast to their approach during the PS2 era when we got three Grand Theft Auto games in four years. I'm with you. I, I, think, I think there's got to be room for everything. I think the gamer has to be, uh, the consumer has to be comfortable with the idea that game prices are going to go up. They're going to go up. And I, I agree with you in the sense that I think this is going to happen anyway for AAA games, even if they're not uh, 60 hour games or even if they're like persistent games or whatever the case may be. But for me, I, I want to explore everything and I really only want to play a hand, like maybe one really big game a quarter. You know what I mean? Like a like a 50 plus hour game. I can't do that every fucking day. I can't do that every week or every month. Like I just don't have the time. I don't have the propensity to do that anymore at 35 years old. And I'm so I'm with Sean Layden where I want developers to respect my time. If you can make a game that's 60 hours and it respects my time and justifies the 60 hours, then give me a 60 hour game. But if your game is 60 hours and it really could have been 20, then you're not respecting my time and you're not respecting your own bottom line and you're making it more difficult for you to make your own games. I was always concerned about this arms race, about game length. And I've long said that we started, and I was part of this problem, I think, for a while, a long time ago, but judging games based on how long they are. Like wanting the the maximum bang for your buck from gameplay, but that's not the the value proposition. The value proposition is quality. You know, a 22 or 24 minute episode of Seinfeld is much funnier than a 48 minute episode of some show on USA or whatever, you know, and they respected our time and got their stories out. And maybe it's not a one to one comparison because this is an interactive medium, but I just I want the 90 minute journeys and I want the 100 hour Dragon Quest 11s, but I want lots of games that kind of veer towards respecting our time a little more and maybe giving us replay value instead of a 25 hour campaign. Like with The Last of Us Part Two, I, I still I'm like, how is this game 30 hours? Like, how is this possible? Yeah, you know, and and that's not a good feeling to have for even a great game. Like I like to your point. I would rather have a game leave me wanting more than me being frustrated near the end of it, which is what happens to a lot of me with a lot of games now where I'm like, just end, you know, like just end already. Yeah. And so maybe maybe I'm not in the maybe I'm not in the majority there, but I I definitely I definitely feel that where I'm just I'm frustrated when a game just feels like I just have 50, 80 hours to it's got to be really, really exceptional, you know, and there are there are occasional there are occasional moments when like, yeah, yeah, something is. Like I thought, Red Dead Redemption Two was like nothing short of probably one of the one of the finest examples of like narrative in in video games ever. Like it felt like watching an entire series, uh, like an entire like it felt like watching every season of Breaking Bad almost. I would have liked to not have completed it so quickly because we had to, we had to get that spoiler cast out. But I could definitely see myself playing that game on a normal time scale and being like, "This is this is kind of cool." But that th- those Red Dead Redemption Two tier titles are so few and far between versus how many enormously long video games there are. There are so many games that I look at and it's like, man, this game gets really good in the 60th hour. And it's like, wow, that's, that's great for you. Yeah. You know what, dude, Red Dead's a really great example too, because, you know, Layden's talking about games ranging in upwards of $130 million to make now, which is true. And they go even higher than that. Red Dead Redemption 2 had over a thousand people working on it for more than five years. That's a with marketing. That's a half a billion dollar game. And the point he's making, I think, is salient when you think about it through that lens of Red Dead 2, which is like companies don't even have the wherewithal or the capital to put the money down necessary to make a game like this. Nonetheless, make it. 
So maybe we need to like reel it back a little bit because most companies that would, there's, there's almost no company in their right mind that would spend that much money on a game. And it's, it's just, I think gamers, I don't want to say they're part of the problem. I don't think that that's the right verbiage, but the, this mentality that you can't spend more for games or that you're not going to spend more for games is going to be a problem. And you're going to be sadly mistaken. Yeah. Uh, probably as soon as PlayStation 5 launches and you find out the games are 80 bucks. Um, I think, do you think that's why that's part of the reason why they haven't unveiled price yet? Yeah, I think so. I think that might have something to do with it because I think, I think even sixty nine ninety nine is not enough. You yeah. know, like I think it's going to go higher than that. I like think for it, a AAA game, the, I I think I remember saying eighty was my yeah. was my prediction. Yeah, um, eighty is. I think you you are right. You said that, and I said sixty nine ninety nine. And thinking about it, I'm like, I don't know. Like, is is ten dollars and per copy sold? Is that really going to make a difference when you're talking about? If you sell a million copies of a game at $70 for $10 more, that's a $10 million increase in, in revenue. But that's not really a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money, but that's not a lot of money when you're spending $140 million on your game. For sure. You, you have to make more. And um, I don't know. I, I, think, I think a lot of it has to do with what the third parties want and what Microsoft's going to do as well. And, and Nintendo. Nintendo prices remain stubbornly static at $60, but it would be interesting if they really stayed there. Yeah. Um, even if the others went up in price as well. So I I'm tripping right now because I just I just I just scratched uh, a birthmark off my off my hand that I th- I could have sworn was permanent for years. Wow, that's crazy. I'm, I'm really having a moment right now. You should eat it. Eat it. <laughs> this is existential for me right now. All right, let's get it. Let's uh, get into the next uh, topic here. Number seven. Phil Spencer, the leader of Microsoft's Xbox division, spoke with some candor about PlayStation 5's recent games reveal, indicating that at least outwardly, he and his team are feeling good about the, in the uh, feeling good in the afterglow. Website GameSpot reports some of Spencer's comments from the recent Game Lab Live conference, in which he said in part, quote, I watched the show. I thought they did a good job. As a competitor, it's great to have them out there now. So we kind of know what the program is. We see the device. We see the games. Just being honest, I felt good after seeing their show. I think the hardware advantages that we have built are going to show up as we're talking more about our games and frame rates and other things. I thought the games lineup that we're going to have at launch, I feel really good about it. And we got more clarity on what they're doing at their show, which just helps us focus on what we have. And I think that will be a strength for us at launch. So I thought they did a good job. I think that they do what they do very well, and they did that. But when I think about the position we're in with the games that we're going to be able to show and how they're going to show up and the hardware advantage that we have, I think we're in a very good position, end quote. Microsoft is slated to have its own new game reveal this July. The launch date of their new console, Xbox Series X, is still unknown, though it will be releasing around the same time PS5 does this holiday season. What do you think about that? Phil Spencer seems pretty confident even after PS5 games were shown off. And the PS5 reveal was very, very well received. So what do you think about Phil Spencer's candid confidence? Uh, I mean, I think it's good. It it could always be just kind of saving face because obviously like a... Phil Spencer isn't going to be like, oh, man, I feel really bad, man. You know, I feel like I feel like I'm about to jump off a cliff. I know we're going to give up. <laughs> yeah, it's like, actually, you know what? We're not we're just not going to come out anymore. <laughs> like, like, I just uh, I mean, the reality is like he's just he's not going to say anything else than what he's saying. As far as this like confidence goes, like, it's just how you it's just how you go about this kind of stuff. And, and, and especially with media dealing with it. But I don't know. It's It's hard to really say because we have such little we have so little info about what is going to be shown really all we know for sure is that halo will be there uh and that's a huge thing for a lot of people 
that's a huge thing for me for sure it's the main reason that i'm going to be watching but i you know hellblade maybe maybe they've got a lot of stuff that we just haven't seen maybe they have a lot of stuff that is a lot further along than maybe people anticipated i i really i don't know like it, it it's a kind of a crapshoot right now yeah, we're going to see. I'm excited. We'll do a Sacred Symbols Plus episode about the Xbox games when that happens, because uh, I'd like to talk about them with you and obviously get your impressions of Halo, which you've been waiting patiently for for yeah, years, for, for half a decade now. Uh, all right. So we'll leave it there for now with that. Yeah. Uh, number eight, the newest entry in the Celebrated Tales series of JRPGs has been delayed, according to a post on publisher Bandai Namco's website. Tales of Arise, first revealed back in 2019, is slated to be the 19th core Tales game since 1995's Tales of Fantasia, and the first release in the franchise dating back to 2016, when Tales of Berseria came to PS4. There has never been such a long gap in between Tales releases. There was a long time when they actually came out every year, in fact. But now the gap has become longer, and Tales of Arise will no longer launch in 2020. Yasuke Tomozawa, the game's producer, notes that COVID-19 has provided the team with some headaches, but in fact, they simply need more time to achieve better graphical fidelity, which is a surprisingly candid comment. I was really shocked, Chris, when I read that. I know you're not a Tales fan, but he, they basically say like the game doesn't look good <laughs> uh, and we need time to make it better. What do you think about this? What do you think about that uh, pronouncement, especially because Tales games have never really been known to be very pretty games? Yeah, well, maybe it's like a uh, new Pokemon pr- uh, pretty where it's like, ooh, geez. We really yeah. gotta, we really gotta spruce this, uh, spruce this baby up. I don't know. I, I think, uh, I like, I like whenever a developer is candid about things. You know, that that's always like a really nice feeling to have because it feels like I feel like I'm not being bullshitted, even though this isn't a series that I have any intention of playing. It's, it's nice that that kind of candor is is still prevalent in some ways throughout the industry. I feel like it used to be a lot more prevalent. I feel like in the, uh, the mid aughts or the late aughts, people were more willing to be like. Man, I'm stressed out. I'm about to. I'm really close to killing myself over this game. But uh, <laughs> I remember some of my favorite, some of my favorite uh, video game like hype trailers were like when uh, when Bungie was working in like the late aughts. They were like, everybody's expecting this to be good, and I'm scared. <laughs> it was just like, oh shit. I like that. I like when they're just like, yeah, it doesn't look good. Uh, we'll fix it, but uh, it's not good right now. <laughs> yeah, I, it's especially rare at a Japanese studio. So I was I was happy to see that, although. I was disappointed because in my in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, the Tales game comes out later in the year, so I'll have that to look forward to. But at the, it's kind of a six of one, half dozen of the other thing because we'll have all these PS5 games to play and maybe Tales of Arise would kind of get buried. So maybe it's wise for them to push it out. Plus, there's other Bandai Namco RPGs coming in between. So I'll yeah. get my fill of that Japanese nerdy shit. For sure. No doubt. <laughs> Speaking of Japanese nerdy shit, number nine. A new Bloodstained game has been announced, and it's in the same 8-bit vein as 2018's Bloodstained prequel, Curse of the Moon. It's aptly titled Bloodstained Curse of the Moon 2, and will be launching sometime this year on PlayStation 4 and elsewhere. Unlike the original Curse of the Moon, however, there will be no Vita iteration this time around. Boo. Koji Igarashi, longtime Castlevania producer and the creator of the Bloodstained franchise, will be producing the game, and by the look of it, Curse of the Moon's substantial Castlevania 3 influence seems to be intact in the sequel. As was the case in Curse of the Moon, the sequel will have multiple playable characters, but the cast, other than protagonist Zengetsu, is totally new. The team includes an exorcist named Dominique, a soldier named Robert, and a dog named Hachi. Watch the trailer. It looks and sounds amazing. I absolutely cannot wait to play this game. I loved Curse of the Moon. It was so good. It was arguably better than the real Bloodstained. So uh, <laughs> yeah. go check that out. I, I, I saw this and I immediately thought of you. I cried a very long, uh, stringy, unsettling, uh, happy tear. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's like Colin's going to love this. 
Yeah, man, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Curse of the Moon. And obviously that's an Any Creates game and I love me some Any Creates. So yeah, we'll keep an eye out for that. It's supposed to be coming, like I said, they said soon. Yeah. So fun fact about Bloodstain, though, like yeah. I, it's on Game Pass and I downloaded it and I was going to try it out and uh, I, I just can't I can't start it. <laughs> really? It just doesn't work. <laughs> it just doesn't. Like I, I, I select a new game or like and I'm trying to pick something off a menu and it just won't let me. So I'm like, all right. All right. That's weird. Yeah, it's really, really strange. Uh, maybe is that a common problem? Did you read about it on Google or anything? No, I, I just sort of casually tried it and it didn't work. And I was like, all right. <laughs> so you just kind of you just kind of gave up yeah right, well, i was already just sort of vaguely curious so like the second it became like tedious for me to just engage in that curiosity i'm just like ah, i'll f- figure it out some other day fair enough uh all right let's move on number 10 and in a conversation electronic arts head honcho and ceo andrew wilson conducted about ea star wars licensing agreement as related by website GameSpot, some new very interesting details emerged particularly in regards to sales For instance, while Star Wars Battlefront and Battlefront 2, launched in 2015 and 2017 respectively, didn't set the world on fire critically, they did do amazingly well commercially. The two games have combined to sell 35 million copies. Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, Respawn Entertainment's single-player Star Wars game launched last fall, has also done very well, surpassing 10 million units sold. Wilson notes that EA and Disney intend on continuing this partnership as much as possible with as high quality as possible, with Star Wars Squadrons up next early this October. So just some quick sales figures there about Battlefront and Battlefront 2. 35 million copies sold. Maybe not a huge surprise. Oh, yeah. Considering no. the name. But yeah, people will buy Star Wars stuff like like crazy. I guarantee you there are people who are Star Wars collectors who bought those games and don't play them. Yeah, probably so. There's a I think I've said this before. There's a uh, I don't listen to any of the other stuff they put out, but there's a YouTube channel called World Class Bullshitters. And uh <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of them, but they they do a lot of like nerd culture stuff. And I just watched one series of videos they do where this one guy goes into toy stores and like goes through all the Star Wars toys that haven't been purchased. And then he goes back later and they're like still there and stuff. It's really funny. Um, <laughs> the, the, the licensing and merchandising for that series is falling apart on the physical level, but it seems like it's increasing with gaming, which is good because uh, Star Wars and games go together like peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, I think so, too. Mm-hmm. Number 11. Developer Crystal Dynamics, long associated with the rebooted Tomb Raider franchise, as well as other hit series like Legacy of Kane, has long been at work on an Avengers game due to finally launch on September 4th on PS4. Whether or not you think this game looks any good or not, it's been quite controversial in most gaming circles since its reveal. You may be pleased to know that the game will also be coming to PlayStation 5, according to a post from Crystal Dynamics CTO on the official PlayStation blog. The PS5 iteration of the game will target 60 frames at 4K resolution and will come with some special perks associated with PlayStation 5's much-vaunted 3D audio functionality and other DualSense-related quirks. If you buy the PS4 version of the game and then want to play on PS5 later on, you will be able to upgrade for free, and there will be cross-play between all iterations of the game as well. While the game comes to PS4 on September 4th, the PS5 iteration of the Avengers will come to that console at launch, so the Avengers will be a PS5 launch game. Did you see this new footage? I just can't I can't make myself be interested yeah. in this game at all, no matter how hard I try. My roommate and I watched like a bunch of it and we were just struggling. We were both just sort of looking at each other with like grimaces almost. We were just like, this looks fine, I guess. But like, why does it need to be a live service game? Like this would be yeah, something that yeah. I would be so curious to play if it was like a like a 10 to 15 hour kind of, you know, Avengers game. That was just like a single player thing and you get to because I, I think there are elements of it that looks that look interesting. I, I, I like that, you know, Captain America plays like an Arkham character. I like that uh, Iron Man plays like a like uh, a completely different character. I like that they all seem to play differently. But um, I just 
I, it, it just, I don't understand where the life service fits into this. It, like, it, it seems so forced in that I just, I can't even reconcile that the game even has that functionality. Like, it, it just, I feel like I'm looking at a, whenever they talk about the game over the footage, I feel like they're talking about two different games. It's so jarring. And I, I don't know, man, it just looks slow and like sluggish and like Hulk is like sprinting, but he's like running like, like he's running through water. It's, it's just so strange to watch something that was conceivably like in development for a really long time. And, and that's, that's attached to such a phenomenally like well-known IP just looks so, I don't know what the term is half baked. Yeah, it's. It's clearly a game that was in some trouble. I mean, this game was rumored to be in development forever back when I was still in San Francisco. I mean, because it's being made at Crystal Dynamics, which is in the Bay Area. Um, I agree with you. I don't think it looks very good. I think this is kind of Square Enix's play as a publisher to get into live services. They do have a, they do have MMOs like Final Fantasy 11 and Final Fantasy 14 but, and Dragon Quest 10. But I think that they want to get more ingratiated in Western style games as a service. I just think that they're, they picked the wrong game to do it with. And it seems like kind of like you said, a square peg in a round hole. It just doesn't really work. I, I, and I agree. Like this would have been a, just a cool open world game to play as different characters. And I think it's going to have a less of less of an appeal because of what they're trying to do to it. But maybe it'll be good. I know some people are excited about it, but I'm not seeing a lot of buzz for this game. Like you said, considering the level of the IP. I mean, this is Marvel's arguably Marvel's biggest IP. Yeah. And there just doesn't seem to be that much hype about it at all compared there, to like even Miles Morales seems to have more hype and that's further out. You know? Yeah, exactly. Miles Morales is going to be out and it's locked behind a single system. So the idea that like that has more hype or that Spider-Man had more hype or that even I feel like even Batman, I feel like even the new Batman game is going to be like people are going to be talking about it a lot more than they're talking about this. And it's just kind of wild given just how recent I mean, I guess it wasn't that recently that uh, the the final Avengers movie came out. It was it was a while ago now, but we're not that far removed from it for the for the license to not carry something like this. Yeah. And also, I, I will say that there's no way that the original intent was not to sync those games up with oh, the yeah, game up yeah. with the movie. Like, I think that goes to show you how troubled this game's development has been. Uh, I think we'll see or hear some interesting stories about that. I don't know why Crystal Dynamics was chosen to do this game. It doesn't seem like a game. They're really equipped to make, but we'll see. I mean, maybe it'll be great. Maybe we'll be wrong. I'm probably not going to play it, but I'll defer to you or someone else to let yeah. me know. I'll be curious to play it. All right. Number 12, open world RPG Cyberpunk 2077 may have been recently delayed and will now come to PS4 this November, but that hasn't stopped developer and publisher CD Projekt from revealing the next step in the fledgling series progression an anime. Netflix will be handling production and will have exclusive access to the product and it will launch at some point in 2022 across a 10 season arc. The anime is called Cyberpunk Edge Runners, and Japanese anime team Studio Trigger, perhaps best known for Kill a Kill and Little Witch Academia, am I saying those things right, nerds? Will be leading <laughs> creation with CD Projekt acting as producer. New Cyberpunk 2077 footage and gameplay has also been revealed recently, and CD Projekt plans on showing even more of the game in just the next few weeks. Cyberpunk 2077, long in development and much delayed, will come to PS4 on November 19th, and will also come to PlayStation 5, though it remains to be seen if that will happen at launch. Are you interested in this uh, anime at all? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. No, I, I I just can't. Like, maybe if, if it was the Castlevania guys working on it, I'd probably, I'd probably be, like, super into it. But yeah, this is a real Japanese team working on it. I mean, no offense to the Castlevania guys, but they're not. They're a Western team, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. But like, they, 
Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably why I like it so much. Yeah, but I, re- I recognize this little witch academia. Although, no, there was another one. Um, My hero. My hero. Is that a, is that different? I guess that's different. I, I guess. It, I don't know. It might be like a sequel series kind of thing. Like one of those like where it's like Dragon Ball and then Dragon Ball Z. You know, it might be one of those yeah. things. There was also a Super Famicom game. I thought it was called Kill a Kill, but I guess not. It might have been. Oh, Live a Live. That was or Live Alive. That's what it was called. Yeah. OK, never mind. Close. All right. Number 13. Sony wants to make you into a digital bounty hunter. Well, kind of. On the official PlayStation blog, PlayStation's parent company revealed the PlayStation Bug Bounty Program, a way for intrepid gamers in in and out of the ecosystem to assist Sony in discovering vulnerabilities to the PlayStation 4 and PlayStation Network and paying those players for their trouble. As the blog post reads in part, quote, we have started a public PlayStation Bug Bounty Program because the security of our products is a fundamental part of creating amazing experiences for our community, end quote. As such, Sony is partnering with an organization called HackerOne, who will run the program on PlayStation's behalf. If you find a critical vulnerability, you can make $50,000 or more. You can go to HackerOne.com slash PlayStation. So that's HackerOne.com slash PlayStation to see a full list of monies offered, entities available within that ecosystem to take a gander at if you have the necessary technical skills, and much more. This is an interesting, albeit necessary, move for Sony to take, particularly after its PSP hardware was broken wide open for most of the handheld's life cycle, and most pivotally, PlayStation Network was taken offline for over a month in 2011 as hackers had their way with Sony's online infrastructure. So what do you think of this, Chris? They're paying lots of money for people to try to break their shit. This is something that happens in Silicon Valley at companies like Apple and Uber and others. They have people that literally just do this. But I didn't expect Sony to be so open about it because I feel like it courts hackers to try to do fucked up shit to them again. But uh, I'm curious what you think about this. Well, I mean, that's kind of the point, you know, like it's uh, I I think this is good. This is like this is like the white white hat and black hat hacker kind of dichotomy where it's like, yeah, if you're going to hack, you might as well just you might as well make money from it and you might as well just help, you know, a platform, especially if it's a platform that you care about and you're like invested in. Uh, I think it's a cool thing. I, I I do think it's a bit like, you know, late. I feel like this should have been something that was like, I don't know, seven years ago <laughs> that they started doing this. But I mean, I, I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good move in general. And anytime, because this is definitely like the best way to find vulnerabilities in your in your platform. It's not like through bug testing or like QA. It's definitely like, hey, come break our shit. Yeah, I, I feel like you're right. First of all, this is a little late, but and I, I don't want to speak too out of turn because I'm not much of a technical guy, as the audience knows. But I wonder if this also speaks to Sony's, like we said before, what seems to be like kind of a lack of engineering talent at the company compared to some of its contemporaries where it has to like go outside. I don't I, I don't I could be wrong, but I don't see Microsoft and Nintendo doing this. Yeah. No, the, yeah, there's no I, I think Microsoft might maybe not on X, on the Xbox side of things, but uh I mean, Apple does it, and Apple's certainly not, you know, not void of any software skill or engineering sure. skill. So sure. I, I, I just think it's like a valid strategy of like, you know, there's only so much that you can do. Like, it, it's almost like writing something when it's like if you write a story, it's like, you know, the ins and outs of that story. But like, you really need somebody else to kind of go through it before you can really fix it because only they're really going to notice the glaring issues because you spent so much time working on, on what you're working on. So I I think it's like just kind of like analogous of that where it's like, Hey, you know, I've been looking at this code for years. I've been, everything looks normal to me. I need some fresh eyes. I need some fresh people in here to run amok on it and show me what's wrong with it. 
because that really is the best way to improve anything. Yeah, it's kind of parallel to the conversation we had, I think, last week about QA and um, and not even QA, but uh, focus testing. Yeah, totally. And how you just need people in that haven't seen it so you can get fresh eyes. So yeah, you're probably right. And again, I don't know. Maybe Sony has the best engineers in the world. It just doesn't sometimes seem that way. <laughs> yeah. Number 14, a couple of very notable JRPGs finally have Western PS4 release dates. For starters, the much-anticipated Legend of Heroes Trails of Cold Steel 4 is coming to PS4s in the West on October 27th. Trails of Cold Steel 4, 4 launched in Japan back in 2018 and is naturally the fourth game in the Trails of Cold Steel spin-off series, first launched on PS3 and Vita back in 2013. The series is developed by celebrated Japanese developer Nihon Falcom, which also happens to be responsible for the other JRPG in coming to Western PS4s, East 6, or I'm sorry, East 9, Monstrum Knox the next game in the very long-running E series that dates way back to 1987. It will launch on Western PS4s at some point in 2021. East 9 didn't launch too long ago in Japan, however. It came out there last fall. So uh, two exciting games for all of you nerds out there. I'm probably not going to play Trails of Cold Steel 4 because I'm still playing the first one. Uh, oh, so yeah. I probably won't get there anytime soon. But East 9, I'll definitely play. I love these. And finally, Chris, we have ourselves the wrap-up number 15. The official PlayStation blog reports that open-world action RPG Genshin Impact will be getting a closed beta on PS4 beginning on July 2nd. Website Gamatsu reports that puzzle game Superliminal is coming to PS4 on July 7th. That action puzzler Bubble Bobble 4 Friends is coming to PS4 at some point this November. That shmup compilation Darius Cosmic Revelation is coming to PS4 at some point this winter. That fighting game Metal Revolution is coming to PS4 by the end of the year. That adventure game Iris Fall is coming to PS4 this fall. That side-scroller Bladed Fury is coming to PS4 this fall. That Japanese game Escape from Asura is coming to Western PS4s in 2021. That JRPG Death End Request 2 is coming to Western PS4s on August 25th. That side-scrolling JRPG Fallen Legion Revenants is coming to PS4 in 2021. And that FPS Insurgency Sandstorm has been delayed and will no longer come to PS4 on August 25th, but at an unknown point in the future. Website Push Square reports that racing game Project Cars 3 is coming to PS4 on August 28th. Polish developer CI Games has, has revealed that its new game, Polish developer CI Games has revealed that it has a new game coming to its sniper franchise, aptly named Sniper Ghost Warrior Contract 2, coming, to fall, coming this fall to PS4. Publisher Electronic Arts has revealed that this year's iteration of FIFA, FIFA 21, will launch on PS4 on October 9th. It's also coming to PlayStation 5, as confirmed last week, but it's unclear on if the game will be available in time for the console's launch. Website IGN reports that a new Earth Defense Force game, Earth Defense Force 6, has been revealed and will come to PS4 in 2021. While that's confirmed for Western release, another Earth Defense Force game called World Brothers is also announced for PS4, but hasn't been confirmed for Western localization. And finally, publisher Activision has revealed that the much-anticipated remakes of Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 due out in September will be getting a demo. Oh, that's so sick. I love, I love that. Uh, Christian Coulter wrote into us on Patreon. He says, hey, Crawlins, your podcast is such a highlight of my week that in the days after a new episode, the two daily dog walks grow from 30 to almost 60 minutes each. So in the name of my old, healthy, happy English bulldog, Bex, thank you. You did some time ago a poll about the drop and it survived. Recently, I found myself drifting away when you get to the final news roundup. For me, at least, it's too much of an info dump, so I barely ever pay attention. I was just wondering if it's just me or if it's more of the audience feels like me about that segment. So I don't know how you guys feel about that segment. Write in and let me know. My idea, Chris, as you know, and I've said this before, is I want to mention every game at least once. Right. And... That's it. I mean, that's the whole idea is I want I want to I want to talk about games when they're revealed. I want to talk about games when they get dates and then we can talk about them in the drop. So that's kind of the idea. I want every game to get a little bit of shine here on Sacred Symbols. But you guys can let me know. Maybe you don't find that useful. I'll probably ignore you if you don't. Uh, but <laughs> nonetheless, you can, of course, let me know. 
Chris, it's time to get into the new games released this week. We have a list of games, but again, no drop description. By the way, if you guys go to PlayStation blog and read the comments, people are fucking livid that the uh, comment that there's no longer like details about any of these games. So I don't know how long this is going to last, but the audience liked it when we made things up about these games. And so we'll do so again, going back and forth. Tradition dictates that you go first. Oh, man. Of course, I get this one, too. Assetto Corsa Competizione comes to PS4. Where where are we? I I don't know. Atesso Corsa. I have no idea how to even riff on this because I don't know what any of these words mean in any context. (laughs) What the hell is? I'm actually curious. What is this? It's probably you got to assume it's probably some sort of um racing game maybe maybe a that's, setup? that's my guess yeah okay so it's uh, it's a ra- it's a racing game so you, you you drive a car on some pavement real fast get your real fast cars today Fair enough all right i have bounty battle which is coming to ps4 bounty battle believe it or not is a licensed uh game from bounty the paper towel company and what you basically do is you spill things so it's very real time. You spill things on the different surfaces, tile, wood, uh, laminate, etc. And then you use various bounty products to try to clean them, up, clean them up as quickly as possible. Game has an easy platinum trophy. So uh, go check it out. Coaster comes to PS4. Precipitation is enemy number one in this thrill ride. Do you respect wood? Find out today <laughs> in Coaster for PS4. Nice Curb Your Enthusiasm reference. Very nice. Yeah. <laughs> Conan Shop Shop comes to PS4 now. This is actually an interesting... So you guys might remember back in the 90s, there's a Conan and there was Xena <laughs> Warrior Princess, right? Conan the Barbarian, Xena Warrior Princess. Yeah. They took place in the same universe. Occasionally, they crossed over. Uh, Conan Chop Chop is actually a, a reimagining of that crossover, chopping everything up so that you get a little bit of Conan, a little bit of Xena. It's going to come in two parts. Conan goes first, Xena goes second. So Conan Chop Chop, and then you're going to get Chop Chop Xena. You put them together, it's going to be Conan Chop Chop, Chop Chop Xena. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Covert comes to PS4. Man, uh, uh, there's a lot of spying going on. Edward Snowden's out there in the snow. Uh, Epstein, what happened to him? Find out. <laughs> Find out in Covert. Covert Very good. Very PS- good. For PS4. Firefighters Airport Heroes comes to PS4. Uh, so th- this is a, a, a simulation game. So you know like how firefighters would go around and they would fly to various places like in Australia or California where they were needed to put out wildfires and there would be like these accolades yeah. uh, given to the firefighters at the airports. Well, Firefighters Airport Heroes is all about the accolades that the firefighters get when they go uh, to the airport. So it has nothing to do with fighting fires or anything like that. It's literally about getting off of planes and being celebrated as you get off the plane. Firefighters Airport Heroes, PS4. Nice. Uh, Hunting Simulator 2 uh, comes to PS4. It's a sequel to the first Hunting Simulator, which, uh, you know, didn't realize the full hunting simulation potential that they really sought out for. So Hunting Simulator 2 is all about fighting uh, animals in every possible location that you could possibly conceive of finding them. A deer in an abandoned mall, a lion in a in a in a TJ Maxx, uh, (laughs) you know, a whale, perhaps in the Grand Canyon. Uh, wow. Hunting, hunting Simulator 2, Become the Hunt. <laughs> Very good. I like that a lot. Hunting games getting pretty popular on it, uh, yeah, PS4. It, uh, yeah, it honestly is. It's like Cabela's like, sacrificed something and just became ever-present. 
Yeah, and, that, and Avalanche makes that that those those hunting games on the uh, Apex engine as well. Jump Step Step comes to PS4. Uh, this is all about learning how to walk, but doing it in reverse. So obviously a baby, dumb babies, they can't jump before they walk. But in Jump Step Step, they learn how to jump first, then they take two steps, uh, then they jump again. So it's a little bit of an unusual game. Uh, it's a side-scroller action game, an indie game. Yeah. Uh, but Jump Step Step kind of tries to en- encompass that idea of a child wa- learning to walk, but in fact, the child is learning how to jump and then yeah. step and step. That's really cool. That's like a like it's almost like a, a strategy game, but like a platformer where you got to like you can, you can only jump step step and then you have to plan out those those jumps. Yeah, that's actually a, even a better one. That's actually a really good idea. Oh, is that really what the game is? I don't I don't know. <laughs> I know that actually sounds like I a good idea jump. where you have to like you have to do the sequences like you have to jump. Then you have two steps and then you have to figure out. How to, that's actually a nice idea. Not bad. Yeah. Indie Calypse uh, comes from. Man, what that's terrible. Indicalypse yeah, comes to PS4. Uh, what happens when the world ends and all you have left is indie folk rock to carry you through the bleak, torturous <laughs> days of 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 uh, of the bleak tomorrow? Find out in this somber and not nearly as emotional as it thinks it is uh, survival uh, survival adventure game. Little Town Hero comes to PS4. You know, in the United States, there's a lot said about flyover country, about red country. And there's a lot of little towns dotted across the United States that don't get their due. And in Little Town Hero, you uh, play as a, a guy named Jack Welling. And he lives in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Little town. And there he's a hero. And he just goes around and he does tasks for various individuals there. And it's a little town hero and he does little tasks. So it's like, oh, my neighbor across the street, she needs me to get her mail. You go do that. Uh, oh, this person needs me to go pick up some groceries for them because they have COVID and they're dying in their bed. They go do that. Little Town Hero. Uh, open world game, Jackson uh, Hole, Wyoming, PS4. Mad Runner comes to PS4. Usain Bolt is placed under a, un, under a disturbing curse from a playful wizard and loses his ability to stop. Guide Usain Bolt through the hazards of... of uh, of civilization as he tries to not crash into things at top human speed. Mad <laughs> is runner. he still considered like the really fast, like the fastest guy or is he old now? Oh, I don't know. I, I just feel yeah. like he's just always the fastest person. That's like when I yeah. think of a fast person, that's the only person that I think of. Well, it's a perfect name, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Honestly, like it's really kind of amazing that he's not like a, like a Marvel character or something. Yeah, I know. Usain, it sounds like a Marvel character. Usain Bolt is the fastest person alive. Octonaut comes to PS4. So uh, in an alternate history timeline where the uh, last two Apollo missions weren't canceled, uh, a series of four astronauts go to the moon to explore, and there they encounter an alien civilization. And this alien civilization, instead of killing them or doing something other heinous to them, they they take the four astronauts and put them together in some sort of new congealed uh, entity. Now mm. they have they have eight arms and eight legs. They are now the Octonaut. And the entire game is about trying to fit themselves back into the craft to get home. They're afraid to tell uh, Mission Command what has happened to them. And they're being threatened. Their families are being threatened by these aliens. Nice. And so uh, they're stitched together, 16 limbs, 8 arms, 8 legs, Octonaut, coming soon to PS4. Pancake House comes to PS4. This is a simple sim. You run a pancake house, make sure the syrup doesn't get doesn't get on too early to, so as to not make the, make the pancake a, a soggy, disgusting paste. Make sure the syrup gets on just the right time. It's all about managing your business and, and firing the right people 
and gauging customer interest in pancakes as it no doubt plummets uh, <laughs> in the in the age of a sinking economy. Fair enough. I, I love pancake houses. Yeah, so they're great. Much. By the way, you didn't say syrup, right? You said it's syrup. Syrup. <laughs> syrup, right. <laughs> Disgusting. Paul Arumi comes to PS4. So the, the key word in Paul Arumi is paw. Right. We don't have very many of these games here uh, in our ecosystem or in other video game ecosystems. But this is about working in a veterinary a veterinarian's office. But actually, you're not the vet. You're not doing anything exciting. You're actually a woman named Rumi. And you are the secretary. You take calls. You uh, net out faxes. You answer inquiries and email. You sell prescription drugs for the animals. Uh, it's a bit of a life sim. It's an interesting sort of game. Looks pretty promising. Pa Warumi coming pa- to PS4. Party Pumper comes to PS4. Uh, Dig Dug is back and furious. Uh, take control of the of the hero from Dig Dug as he uh, waltzes into various house parties and uh, pumps people up until they explode. That's that's Party Pumper. I don't know why they chose to make this really jarring. Uh, I don't even know if they have rights to this license, but uh, that's Party Pumper. Yeah, Sony doesn't pay attention to any of that stuff, so it'll get pulled down at some point. <laughs> Pushy and Pulley and Blockland comes to PS4. So Blockland is a really fucked up place. It's a fascist dictatorship on another planet, and it's a it's a really trying place. They have high unemployment. Uh, the government is corrupt and all of these different things. Pushy and Pulley are two prisoners in Blockland's gulag, and their whole thing is that they need to get out. So if we think about the game, the EA game, A Way Out, which was very popular about the prison escape... This is a very similar game. Uh, Pushy and Pulley are not humans, though. They're blocks because everyone in Blockland is indeed a block. So enter the fascist dictatorship of Blockland. Help Pushy and Pulley escape on PS4. Rugby Challenge 4 comes to PS4. Uh, Can you survive rugby with swords? Probably not, but that's your challenge in Rugby Challenge 4 coming to PS4 today, right now. Wow. Uh, so the next two games are SpongeBob SquarePants Battle for Bikini Bottom Rehydrated and Star Wars <laughs> Episode One Racer. I think we can skip all those. Although uh, I actually want to buy SpongeBob. Uh, I think it looks really good. Personally. Yeah, it's I, I heard it's it's a pretty interesting platformer. Yeah. So I will go to Super Toy Cars 2 comes to PS4. So uh, you might remember the original game Toy Cars. This was during an era when we had no ideas in the video game industry. So we named things like, you know, Dirt Box, Swing Set. And we had games like Toy Cars and Super Toy Cars 2 is just a reimagining of this. You would take your Matchbox cars when you were a kid. You would smash them together. You would make little obstacle courses with your Legos or your blocks. You'd throw them in piles of dirt and forget they were there. So an archaeologist in the far flung future would find it and wonder what happened there. That's what Super Toy Cars 2 is all about on PS4. Yeah. (laughs) A Summer with the Shiba Inu comes to PS4. This is a game about a child who is... uh, paid to watch his neighbor's home for the summer and uh, in turn watch his dog. And his dog uh, speaks to him and no one believes him. His dog says stuff like, uh, Louie, I'm going to kill you tonight. And uh, no one no <laughs> one believes him. No one, <laughs> And no matter who he pleads to and no matter how much uh, video evidence he has, uh, everybody just seems to ignore it uh, because they just don't want to deal with such a uh, concerning situation. So your goal is to convince everybody that this Shiba Inu is genuinely uh, a force to be reckoned with and that you need help all right fair enough sounds good tower of time comes to ps4 so there are four dimensions in the universe there's you know all the the axes and then there's the fourth dimension of time right and that's what tower of time is all about 
Uh, but Tower of Time tries to stretch time through its tower in 2D. So it makes you deal with only two ver uh, verti uh, vertices instead of four, thus confusing the entire point of the game. The side-scrolling action game as you climb the Tower of Jorgua type uh, structure. Uh, and you only get an x-axis and time. I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know how the game works, but it's called Tower of Time on PS4. Ultra Core comes to PS4. This is a game that could uh, literally be anything. This is a racing game, a first-person shooter, a third-person action adventure, all, all maybe even a dancing game or a rhythm <laughs> game. Who knows? It's the most generic name I've ever seen. Uh, but it's probably all of those, and it's coming. It's coming to PS4. So don't don't sleep on it. Yeah, don't definitely don't sleep on that. So that's all the games. I hope uh, people enjoyed our descriptions. Let us know. I don't know if they're funny or not. I, I think they're funny, but I don't know. Probably not. I just make it up as I go. And Chris does, too. It's not like I wrote any of these down or even read them. So, <laughs> yeah, got to take kind of got to take it as it comes. Obviously, that's what's fun. Obviously, the big ones are SpongeBob and probably Star Wars. Yeah, definitely. Star Wars Episode One Racer is an N64 port uh, that was delayed and this just came out. And then, yeah, SpongeBob SquarePants uh, Battle for Bikini Bottom Rehydrated is a THQ Nordic game, I believe. Yeah. And is a re-release of the old. That was a PS2 game. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually a remake. That's not a re-release. -re I think they actually remade it. All right. Daniel Wiseman wrote into us, Chris. We obviously always end with six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas from the audience to round things out. And Daniel says, morning CNC. Well, it's actually nine at night here in the East Coast. Well, it's been the, the week of weeks for streamers. My question to you both is how in the world did Mixer even last this long? So uh, Microsoft owns a streaming platform called the Mixer, and it was meant to compete with Twitch more directly in YouTube gaming and Facebook more indirectly. And they spent a lot of money signing big names like Ninja and others. And they announced that they're closing the entire thing down next month. So I'm not super into this streaming world. I do stream on Twitch. Chris does too, but Chris is more connected to this. How did you feel about the shutdown? It, it, it wasn't a huge surprise, but you would think Microsoft wouldn't give up the ghost this quickly. Yeah, I, I was actually kind of surprised by it because like uh, Mixer actually was like a pretty cool play. I actually like Mixer a lot. Microsoft has this weird tendency of making things that are like, Kind of better than everything available, but like nobody wants to use them anyway. Like I remember doing that. Like you, you remember back when Bing was doing a marketing campaign, and they were like, you would you would search on Google and Bing anonymously, and like you would pick which one had the better results, and it was always Bing. Yeah, I do remember that. I actually did that a couple times, and it it genuinely was a better search engine. Like actually for real. Like it actually like I found everything like a lot better. Uh, it was a lot more reasonable to navigate. It didn't have the same issues, but like. I'm just not going to use Bing. <laughs> like, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's weird because it is a, it is better. And like, I think I think a lot of uh, what Mixer was doing was actually kind of better than Twitch in a lot of ways, too. But it's just once you once you have something that's as ubiquitous as Google and once you have something that's as synonymous with streaming as Twitch, it doesn't really matter if you make something better because just there's so much there's already so much you have to catch up on. And, and there's really just no way to gain ground in a way that's going to make you a real competitor in the space. Yeah, I agree with you. Like, I, I'm so enamored with just doing things the way I've always done them. Like when I jumped from Firefox to Chrome years ago, that was like a big or MSIE to Firefox and then Firefox to Chrome. Like that was a big paradigm shift for me. Like, yeah. I can't believe I'm doing this. And uh, so I totally get this idea of just getting comfortable. Things are good enough. And I've always kind of felt bad for Microsoft in that way because it does seem like they kind of have made some good products that have gotten ignored. But that's the case for others too, including Google, who has made some good stuff and, and it's gotten ignored. There's so much monopolization of different products on 
Twitter, like there's this new thing that I've seen people been talking about called Parler on Twitter, which I guess is like a Twitter like program. And I'm like, I'm not even going to bother signing up for that because there's no way that's going to succeed. Yeah. Because there can only be one Twitter. There can only be one Facebook. There can only be one YouTube, one Google. Yeah. Like the whole point, the whole point of these platforms is that everybody's on them. Like that's right. like the whole selling point is that like, oh, yeah, you're on Facebook, right? Yeah, of course I am. This is where you're going to find me. No one's going to be like, I want. Oh, are you on Google Plus? Uh, no. Oh, OK, well, can you make a Google Plus? <laughs> no, you just sort of make shit. You go where the people are because that's the backbone of social media is to have a society in the first place. <laughs> so like you're just never going to have a bigger install base than Twitter in, in the same way. You like you can have different twists on that formula and you can be like, OK, you know what? Twitter is for like short bursts of thought and like sharing information. And Facebook is more about like, you know, keeping in touch with friends and family and like posting, you know, pictures and albums and stuff. And Instagram is more of like a photo book. And like these all these sites are successful because they don't really compete with each other. They kind of they almost kind of there's like a symbiosis with a lot of them, actually, uh, that I find kind of interesting. And it's, it's the main reason why they've succeeded for so long. Uh, YouTube is a prime example, too. Like, I'm sorry, man. There's no there's not going to be a, a, com, a, a competitor to YouTube. There just there just isn't. Everybody's on YouTube. Everybody knows what YouTube is. YouTube is a YouTube is a verb for finding videos like oh, just YouTube. It. Oh, Google it. You know? Yeah, you, you can't. Yeah, it's, it's hard to escape. Like, I, I imagine a future. Unfortunately, I really don't like YouTube. I mean, I use it because we have to. But I imagine a future in decades where we're still using these programs, these, these different things, you know, yeah. I totally feel that that's going to be the case and it sucks. But yeah, I because I, I don't know, because I just feel like back in the day, it's kind of interesting because back in the day, like sites used to really die out real quick, like in 2006 to the, like 2004 to 2007, even like the two, just early 2000s to 2007. There were a lot of sites that came and went. It was MySpace. There was Friendster. There was like there was all sorts of different things that were trying to be Facebook. But then Facebook came at like the right time with just the right amount of appeal and just the right features that it just it got everybody in. And that was right when the Internet was booming. That was that was right when content creation was getting easier. So everybody was jumping in at that time. That was just the perfect time where everybody was jumping in and it it became just the default. And now you just can't really escape. Like if you were if you were making if you were building a website around that time, like you were you were just screwed because you just could not compete. Yeah, it's just the name. I, I wonder what it is. I guess ca capital markets do tend to go towards monopolization. I mean, this is where trust busting and all that stuff came from. And I understand that I'm, I'm for some regulation of the markets, but this is unregulatable because it's just about convenience. It's, it's a totally new. It's not like standard oil or something. Or it's, it's not like having a what is that? A com the old term combination where you own like every aspect of production of something. So like you own the railway, you own the iron company, you own the train cars, you own the electric company. But it's kind of getting pretty similar to that with Google and some and Amazon and others where they're just scooping up all these companies. So they might have an antitrust problem coming sooner or later. But uh, RIP Mixer. And uh, you weren't long for this world, I guess. Yeah. Sean McGuire wrote into us and said, I know you didn't go to journalism school. We, neither of us did. But were you taught standard journalism ethics in your career? Did you find that your peers or superiors had that education? I don't want to participate in a trend of animosity against journalists, but I found myself very curious this week whether you can rate games and be a journalist. Additionally, I think it's fair to read some of the headlines in this industry and wonder what is the news value of this story? I mean, I read most of the things in this industry and I know exactly what the value of the story is. It's to get clicks. Yeah. Uh, I worked at IGN. I know what that's all about. 
uh, it's, it's a business ultimately. Uh, I didn't take any journalism classes and I only knew one journalist in all of my time at IGN who was that had an, a journalist uh, background, which was Greg. But Chris, what do you think the difference is between like a journalist and a critic? I always kind of felt like game, the games industry is kind of unique in that that's the only industry I can really think of where there's crossover between those two things. Usually like you're a critic or you're a journalist. You don't open the New York Times up and like have the dude that writes the White House press pool shit reviewing New York Times bestseller books. It, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't understand why that happened. I yeah. think there should be room for both. I like I think there should be room for critics and then room for journalists. But I think that there's a lot of neither actually in our industry right now. Yeah, I, I don't know how I feel about that, because I, I just feel like that's just the nature of how content creation goes, where like there's kind of this 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 natural need to just sort of cut down on things. And, and, and in that cutting down, you just sort of do everything yourself. So like I could, you know, like I, I, I could be a critic, but I could also make a video that's that sheds some light on something that's really important. And it doesn't necessarily feel contradictory to me because I'm a I'm a content creator. And I feel like on some level, a lot of these journalism sites are also I, I would argue that they're almost primarily content creation sites because the content they create just happens to be like reviews and, and critique and and stories about like what's happening there. That is interesting. I hadn't thought about that, that it's really the only industry that journalists are critics. But I also don't necessarily think that it's like weird. But I also I don't know, that might just be because that's just how it's always been. So that's just yeah, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if enthusiast press elsewhere dealt with it that way. Like movies are like the oldest enthusiast press and we know the critics, but you wouldn't see, I don't know, Roger Ebert writing like press release news. I don't know. It's just it's an interesting thing. By the way, I'm so my my new office in my house faces these two windows in this room and there are these fucking gnarly ass clouds coming in, these gnarly ass rain clouds and there's just lightning bolts in the distance. Damn. Just it looks it's pretty fucking harrowing. <laughs> Holy shit. All right. Well, hope you survive. Uh, me too. Nah, frankly, I hope I don't. All right. Let's see. Irish Apple wrote into us and said, Hola, comrade Colin and commandant Chris. You guys talked about having the PlayStation Store and its shortcoming, or, uh, talked about the PlayStation Store and its shortcoming several times in the past. Do you think that Sony could clean things up a bit and potentially create new business opportunities by decentralizing its digital marketplace? The main store could be like a boutique where Sony vets and displays AAA big name exclusives and standout indie games. A Wild West-style bargain store can exist for all the shovelware and simulator games. Games could potentially move to the aforementioned store if they reach certain sales ratings or milestones. One or more legacy stores could be created to keep previous generations' games alive, but not jumbled in with the new stuff. Finally, Sony could potentially work to collaborate with companies like Steam and Epic to create stores for PS port or PC ports. I hope I used the semicolon properly. If not, I apologize. Thank you both for the years of great content you have created, both together and separate. Thank you, Irish Apple. Um, I think your letter explains exactly why this is impossible. It's because it's really confusing. I think I really do think that less is more. Mm-hmm. Less is more. Fewer games. Fewer games. Look at all the games we read. I'm telling you right now, some of these games are going to sell 100 copies. What is even the point? I'm not trying to be an asshole. It's not like, you know, Twin Breaker sold over 10,000 copies. That's fine. It's, it's not like the biggest success in the world. But that is a, that made money. I just don't understand who wins when you have all of these games on the store. So I think Irish Apple's right in that there could be different searchability uh, functions put in, but I don't think you want to have different storefronts because then that creates like little ghettos, right? It's <laughs> like, oh, I don't even, I don't even want to go to the, the indie store. I don't even want to go to the, sh- like who, what's a shovelware store, you know? 
Like, <laughs> what do you what do you think about his proposal here? I don't know. I, th- I think that could work, be- but only because like on the Xbox Live ecosystem in like the early, in like the mid, uh, the middle of that that system's life cycle, you did have you know a downloadable. You you had like a section of the storefront that was it was designated into downloadable games, which was just kind of like everything that was like AAA, like anything that you could download, like Dead Space or something. That's not exactly like what was available, but like an example. And then you had Arcade, which was like some of the more renowned smaller titles. And then you had an indie section, which was just a bunch of weird nonsense that you would go and you would just kind of explore looking for like weird stuff. And I thought that that was a really good way to do it because people were genuinely curious about what was in these storefronts. And it wasn't necessarily that it was like separated. It was just organized. So like if I wanted like an independent game that was like, that I could rely on being pretty good. I could go to the in, I could go to the arcade section and I could find like Limbo and I could find Spelunky and and Braid and Super Meat Boy and and Limbo and and all these all these games that were like really really genuinely good and really really polished um even if they were smaller titles like there was even some like games that I played like the dishwasher it was like a really weird like almost like gothic flash game that was like really fun Alien Hominid. And then you would go to like the indie section just to find like weird, like really weird stuff, like almost intentionally where it's like, uh, it's almost like going to the back of the record store, you know, where you're like, oh, okay. So this is where like the interesting, like weird stuff could be. And I thought that that worked really well. Like I, I frequented all of those sections pretty regularly. And I think a lot of people did too. And I think the second you started jumbling them up, it, I, I feel like it, I feel like it screwed over a lot of people because they couldn't even be at the top of their respected storefronts anymore. You know, at the very least, at the very least, like in that system, you could say like, okay, well, you know what? There aren't a lot of chances for our indie game to get to beat like The Last of Us. Like we're not going to get that space. But if we had our own space and we could make an indie game that was like really, really good and really well received, there's a pretty good chance that we could at least get the top billing on that storefront, on that little section of the of the store. And that would actually feel like I feel like that would actually highlight a lot more good games because it would be maybe like review driven or maybe engagement driven. And like the games that are downloaded the most and the games that have the most interaction could be propelled to the to the front of their respective categories. Yeah, you you and Irish Apple have kind of convinced me that there's something to this. I think that that's a I think I'm turning around on this, by the way. It looks fucking apocalyptic outside. It's like the, the rapture. <laughs> Holy shit. There's some I, I'm not used to being around rainstorms anymore. And in, in, in the mid Atlantic and in the south, the thunderstorms are really serious down here. Yeah, it's fucking kind of great. Holy shit. Lightning's getting pretty bad. All right, let's keep moving before I lose power. Yeah. Uh, all right. Where are we here? Kyle Lieberton wrote in and said, hey, guys, when I was a kid playing Super Mario three with my two older sisters in the early 90s, I was born in 87, he says. We had a tradition that I continue today in every mushroom house. We would jump across the screen and kiss Toad before we opened the item box. It was just something we did and something that even 20 plus years later has stuck with me. And I still do when I replay the game, which is often. Do you guys have any traditions or habits that you do in games old or new? It's funny he brought this up, Chris, because I was talking a little bit about this on my Twitch stream the other day. I was playing uh, Castlevania Rondo of Blood. You guys can come join me on there on Long Island Viper on Twitch. And I do this thing when so when you beat a Castlevania boss, like an orb appears in the middle of the screen and it drops and you take it and then it ends the stage. And so I try to time a jump. So that when the orb appears, I catch it in midair and it freezes him in the middle in the air. Just you can do that in like Ninja Gaiden and other games, too. It's like Mega Man also jumping through the boss doors. 
as opposed to walking through them. I do little things like that. Yeah, you picked up when you were a kid and you never let go. Does anything come to mind for you with this? I don't know if anything comes to I know I have so many of them, but like they're they, I wouldn't say they're anything like necessarily weird. Like they're just like, you know, oh, I, I it's this level. I want to use this specific I want to use this specific weapon or this specific combo of, of things to finish it because it's just like ingrained in, in my way that that's how I finish this this level. And there's like a comfort in kind of doing that uh, in a way that's like reliable. But I don't know if I have necessarily anything that I would I would consider strange like like that or like out of out of the way, you know? Yeah, I don't know. It's just, yeah, just, it's more like muscle memory at this point. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try to jump through the boss door. I'm going to try to jump and grab the orb. Yeah, but uh, yeah, very interesting question, Kyle. I like that question a lot. That brought a smile to my face because I know exactly what you're talking about. Ben Jenkel wrote into us. That sounds like a name you made up. He <laughs> yeah. says, it's like, what's your name? Uh, ben, Ben what? Ben, Ben Jenkel says, hey, Colin and Chris, I was recently playing through the remaster of Mafia 2 and noticed a disclaimer at the beginning of the game warning the player that the game's content remains as it was in 2010 and includes culturally insensitive material. So far, I've noticed that the main cast of Mafia 2 refers to minorities through racist language, though this is mostly filtered through the subjectivity of the time and racial attitudes of the characters. I did notice a problem with the depiction of Chinese in the game world, though, as their ambient dialogue is packed with broad stereotypes and all of that is apart from the characters and the plot. At one point, you can find several Chinese just standing there in the world reciting things about Kung Fu and opium. It's not good. Considering these sorts of disclaimers on older content and also being discussed in the movie space right now as well with Gone with the Winds controversy on HBO, I'm wondering what you guys think about disclaimers like these being placed on older games. Do you feel that this will be the beginning of a trend with remastering old games? Also, considering Mafia 2 is from 2010, not 1939, like Gone with the Wind, what does this really excuse you, you, does this really excuse rather using broad stereotypes? I didn't know that this was in Mafia 2. This is really the remake or the remaster. That's really interesting, Ben. What do you think about that, Chris, about a 10 year old game all already having this thing of like, this was another time, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's another time, but it's also like a period piece for, you know, like there's, there, there's some aspects of it where it's like, yeah, I get it. But at the same time, look, man, I, I would prefer this over just not having the game. Like, I don't give a shit. Like, yeah, put a put a disclaimer in front. Like, d- but don't yeah. d- but don't like it. Don't see a game and, and be like, oh, this has questionable themes or questionable decisions that were assigned at the time and then be like, ah, scrap it, you know, because that's you're you're destroying history, essentially. Like you're you're taking this huge project that is ostensibly good and just sort of destroying it based on what, just because it's out of date? Like that's insane. Like I, I would definitely prefer them just put disclaimer put it put disclaimers on everything. But but leave leave them, you know, just I I prefer them just, have the disclaimers then have them be like patched or like messed with or or uh anything like that because i think it is i think it is somewhat important to kind of preserve these things because i do think they're art and i, I think they deserve to be respected and as such yeah respect art respect the wood i wonder if a if a thing like this actually brings attention to it you oh, know probably like i i think i think gone with the wind is another example of that i'm like it's, a, it's like you said that that movie's almost a hundred years old you know like what do you expect? What do you expect? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's the same thing with Mafia 2 as well. Mafia 2 takes place in the 40s and 50s. The 40s and the 50s were pretty racist in the United States. I don't know if you guys know that. So it's not to excuse that that happened. But like Chris said, it's a period piece. And so it's like, wouldn't it be more conspicuous to make it seem like it's really vanilla and 21st century when that wasn't the way it was? I, when I was reading what he was saying, though, Chris, I thought he was originally going to say when I was reading the letters earlier, putting everything together. There's like shit. There's a shit ton of nudity in Mafia 2. And I thought that that's what he was going to bring up 
but because there's like all the Playboy magazines you find um, as collectibles. But he, yeah. that's not even what he brought up. So I, I got to go back and play this again because I don't even really re- remember that about the game. Yeah, no, me neither. I, I don't. I don't know if there's anything bad about drawing attention to it, though. Honestly, like I think it's fine. Yeah, yeah, sure. I think it, I think it's always hilarious when you go to those old Disney cartoons and it's like this is bad. <laughs> yeah, like, or they could do like with the Looney Tunes where they then they take like um, the guns away from Elmer Fudd or something like that. It's like what do you do? Oh, that, oh that's insane. Yeah, that's that's it, genuinely it like ridiculous. Yeah, I agree. How is he going to kill things now? He's going to do it with his bare hands. He's going to kill Bugs Bunny with his bare fucking hands now. And he's going to wish he had that gun. It's a lot more PG-13 than shooting him. Or that's a lot more like safe than shooting him. Just like watching him twist a rabbit in half. Yeah, break his neck like (laughs) Steven Seagal. Watch the life pour out of his eyes. All right. Final question comes from Martin O'Shea. He says, hey, awesome C duo. I was curious if you have thought about advising the average consumer not to buy a PS5 at launch. Not because it won't be awesome, but because the first units of any hardware can have some kinks that need working out and buying early can mean you'll have them for seven years or more. Since the issues like flaky network cards and not clearly a hardware problem to the user, I have worked in hardware companies for many years and sometimes hardware needs an internal revision that the user never knows about. Think about it like a day one patch that comes out in the second batch of hardware units off the line. A clear example of this is the initial DualShock 4 controllers that had rubber on the joysticks that peeled off from the oils on your hands. Sony soon fixed this problem with tweaking the chemistry in the production line. Wishing you both all the best in these stressful times. I don't know, Chris. I mean, I I think it's buyer beware with everything. I'm not going to tell people not to buy a PS5 unless it sucks. Unless we like get it and I'm like, this thing absolutely sucks. I'm not going to tell you not to buy it. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we should be cautioning the audience more about this? Or I feel like everyone knows that yeah, there's these problems. It's it's common sense to know that like you're you're being an early adopter has its has its risks. You know, obviously. Um, but you also get the benefit of just being there and just seeing it from the beginning and just sort of like experiencing it as it changes and, and develops through time and and get, getting to play everything right away. If that's not important to, to you, then by all means, yeah, just don't buy a PS5. Wait for it to wait for the reviews to come out. Wait for like any hardware ma- uh, malfunctions to be addressed. Uh, wait for any kinds and anything like that. Like it's totally reasonable to wait. I would never force somebody or like implore somebody to buy a PlayStation 5. I could only say that, like, if it came out and I liked it, I would say that, yeah, I like it. I recommend it. Uh, here's what's wrong with it. Here's what's good about it. And, like, make your decision based on this. But if you're not clamoring to get your hands on something on day one, I'm not going to, like, shame you for it or anything. I think it's a totally reasonable opinion to have to not want to buy into something too early. I love the idea of, like, forcing or shaming someone to buy it. Like, yeah. you better buy a PlayStation 5. Yeah, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> you're not a real PlayStation fan, you imp. You imp. You eldritch imp. God. All right, my man. Um, That's all we have for this episode, this boisterous episode of Sacred Symbols. That's a big one. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed all of the kids in the background at Chris's house, too. Hopefully that can be edited out. I don't know. It always sounds like that. Yeah, it actually, it, yeah, straight up. Yeah. Oh, then I guess Dustin already deals with it. So no one it, has any it, idea what it's I'm fine. For the last for the last couple of episodes, it's been like that for sure. Okay, cool. It doesn't pick up on the mic really at all. Well, you guys are compl- you guys out there complain about everything. Uh, so I'm sure we'll hear from you if there's a, if the sound quality is uh, no good. But well, this will be the last this will be the last time these kids are screaming anyway. Yeah, man, you're gonna have your new place soon. So next we convene. We'll talk to you from your new space. We're excited about that, and we thank everyone out there for joining us for uh, showing your love, your kindness, and your support to our show, Sacred Symbols. Remember, support us on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/CollinsLastStand for early ad-free access, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas, and much more. Uh, we thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Take care, guys.
Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Richmond, Virginia and Burbank, California, USA. This show is conceived by, is written by, and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Chris Raygun. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Chris is on Twitter at Chris R. Gunn and on Instagram at Chris underscore Ray underscore Gunn. Sacred Symbols is edited by Dustin Furman. To message the show online, please use Patreon's DM service. As you know, all of Colin's Last Stand shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Alan Abraham, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Zach Bonham, Barrett Boswell, Cody Bradbury, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixey, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Bjorn Campbell, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Shan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Rodney Coleman, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel D'Amour, Colin Davenport, Jordan Detto, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Jay Getter, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Robbie Hensley, Blake Israel, Azan Isa Al Ricey, Josh Yeager, Paul Joyce, Greg Juliffs, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Bo Clant, Kevin Komaki, Mason Cadillac, Greg Lada, Don Q. Lee, Ray Leja, Patrick Leslie, Avery Lewandowski, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lewin Ray Loper, Kevin R. Lord, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Daniel Maraca, Ross Maranca, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Chris Moore, Andrew Morgan, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, George Newton, Daryl E. Naiman, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, James Pappas, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Isaac E. Renteria, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, John Jonathan Rice, Petra Rose, A.G. Rowe, John Scholz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Gregory Slavinsky, Joshua Smallwood, Christian Stewart, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Constantino D. Valencia, Michael Vecchio, Justin Wagaman, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Galja, Casual Misfits Gaming, Homeworld Hub, Current Gen Podcast, Sticks and Crits, Eskimona Fono, Stellar Brooks, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Boots, Organic Produce, TB Lightning, Mad Mock Media, Bloody Fang, Mubarak, Vexius, Richter 86, Hugo's Desk of Fortuna, Gamer Filmaholic, and Megadet. Louie, I'm gonna kill you tonight!